This is Audible. Blackstone Publishing presents The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, A Warning to the Global Middle Class by Joel Kotkin. This book is read by Traber Burns. To Mandy, who means everything to me. Preface This is a book neither of the right nor of the left. It is an attempt to diagnose trends that are leading to a more hierarchical and more stagnant society. It also stands as a warning to the global middle class. Although this die may be cast, I hope the book will stir discussion and spark action to halt the current trajectory toward neo-feudalism across much of the world. As a lifetime Democrat, now independent, I do not see this as an ideological or partisan issue. I believe that the vast majority of people, conservative as well as progressive, do not look forward to a future defined by class immobility and immense concentrations of both wealth and power. This is a global phenomenon that includes not just the United States, but also the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, most of continental Europe, and the rapidly advancing countries of East Asia. Reporting from the ground, particularly in the United States, Australia, the UK, Singapore, India, and China, have done much to shape this book. But I've taken inspiration also from thinking about what the great analysts of the past, Alexis de Tocqueville, Karl Marx, Max Weber, Daniel Bell, Taichi Sakaya, Alvin Toffler, would have made of the current situation. The future that appears on the horizon is not one that I desire for any country or for my own children. This book is meant to rally those who cherish the independence, freedom, and possibilities for upward mobility that have been the hallmarks of liberal democracy over the past few centuries. Part 1. How Feudalism Came Back History never repeats itself. Man always does. Voltaire Chapter 1. The Feudal Revival Feudalism is making a comeback, long after it was believed to have been deposited into the historical dustbin. Of course, it will look different this time around. We won't see knights in shining armor, or vassals doing homage to their lords, or a powerful Catholic Church enforcing the reigning orthodoxy. What we are seeing is a new form of aristocracy developing in the United States and beyond, as wealth in our post-industrial economy tends to be ever more concentrated in fewer hands. Societies are becoming more stratified, with decreasing chances of upward mobility for most of the population. A class of thought leaders and opinion makers, which I call the clerisy, provide intellectual support for the emerging hierarchy. As avenues for upward mobility are diminishing, the model of liberal capitalism is losing appeal around the globe, and new doctrines are arising in its place, including ones that lend support to a kind of neo-feudalism. Historically, feudalism was hardly a monolithic system, and it lasted much longer in some places than others. But certain salient features can be seen in feudal structures across medieval Europe. 
a strongly hierarchical ordering of society, a web of personal obligations tying subordinates to superiors, the persistence of closed classes or castes, and a permanent serf-like status for the vast majority of the population. The few dominated the many as by natural right. Feudal governance was far more decentralized than either the Roman Empire that preceded it or the nation-states that followed, and it depended more on personal relationships than does liberal capitalism or statist socialism. But in the feudal era, a static ideal of an ordered society, supported by a mandatory orthodoxy, prevailed over dynamism and mobility in a condition of economic and demographic stagnation. The clearest parallel in our own time is the concentration of wealth in fewer hands, following upon an era of robust social mobility. In the second half of the 20th century, growing prosperity was widely shared in the developed world, with an expanding middle class and an upwardly mobile working class, something seen in many developing countries as well. Today, the benefits of economic growth in most countries are going mainly to the wealthiest segment of the population. One widely cited estimate suggests that the share of global wealth held by the top 0.1% of the global population increased from 7% in 1978 to 22% in 2012. A recent British parliamentary study indicates that this global trend will continue. By 2030, the top 1% is expected to control two-thirds of the world's wealth. This wealth tends to be handed down from one generation to the next, creating something akin to a closed aristocracy. It may not have a legally privileged status or political power by right of inheritance, but its wealth can buy influence with government and over the culture. Thus we see an oligarchy emerging in supposedly democratic countries with a neo-feudal aristocracy grafted onto a powerful central state. As in the Middle Ages, the power and privilege of this oligarchy are supported by an influential cognitive elite, or what I call the clerisy. The term was coined by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who envisioned a group of secular intellectuals guiding society with their knowledge as the cultural role of the church waned. Today's clerisy are the people who dominate the global web of cultural creators, academia, the media, and even much of what remains of traditional religious institutions. They share many beliefs with the oligarchs, on globalism and the environment, for example, and spread them around to the wider population as a secular orthodoxy. But like the medieval clergy, they sometimes act as a check on the power of economic elites. The clerisy and the oligarchy correspond to the medieval clergy and nobility, or the first estate and second estate, as they came to be known in France. Beneath them are the vastly larger group corresponding to the commoners in the feudal era, or the third estate, those who were neither anointed nor ennobled. Today's third estate, which I call the yeomanry, has two distinct parts. There is a property-owning middle class, analogous to the old English yeomanry, but with the same spirit of independence transported into an urban or suburban context. Historically, the yeomanry played a critical part 
and overturning the feudal order. But today their counterparts are being squeezed beneath the oligarchy. Second, there is a working class who are becoming more like medieval serfs, with diminishing chances of owning significant assets or improving their lot, except with government transfers. Although the two groups that constitute the Third Estate are falling behind, they can still pose a challenge to the oligarchs and the clerisy, as they are no longer quiescent in the face of globalism and technological obsolescence. We are seeing what one sociologist describes as the defection of the working class from a traditional allegiance to the political left, along with a simultaneous rejection of global capitalism and its cosmopolitan value structure. Though the challenge to the oligarchy tends to come from the populist right, there are other forces that could attack from another direction, particularly younger workers and the less affluent portions of the clerisy, who together might form what one conservative writer has described as a zombie army of anti-capitalists. Even as a new feudalism appears to be setting in, it is stirring up counterforces that promise turbulent times. History also regresses. History does not always move forward to a more advanced or enlightened condition. The collapse of classical civilization is a case in point. That civilization had its cruel and unjust aspects, including the extensive use of slaves, but it also engendered cultural, civic, and economic dynamism that spread from the Near East to Spain, North Africa, and Britain. It developed a body of philosophy, law, and institutional forms that laid the basis of modern liberalism. But as classical civilization unraveled from a combination of internal dysfunction and external pressure, its territories devolved into political disorder, cultural decline, and economic and demographic stagnation. While we can put a date to the end of the Roman Empire in the West, the process of cultural decline extended over centuries. The backward trajectory is clear by the 6th or 7th century in the demise of learning, the rise of religious fanaticism, the decline of cities and the collapse of trade, and Malthusian stagnation. Europe's population in the year 1000 was about the same as it had been a millennium earlier. The formerly vibrant urban middle orders had faded away, and the class of landowning peasants shrank as agricultural land was consolidated into huge estates. Class relations became more rigidly hierarchical, with a hereditary nobility and powerful clerics at the top. These ruling classes often competed and fought among themselves, but they were distinctly privileged in comparison with most of the population, who would endure life as landless serfs. The ideal vision of society was static, and the aim was not to find new fields to plow, not to innovate or grow, but instead to maintain an equilibrium within a largely fixed system. In the second millennium, markets and towns began to grow again, craft guilds formed, philosophy and learning quickened. The third estate was rising. Both rural smallholders and a prospering literate bourgeoisie in the growing cities with prosperity came a bigger public voice, and the Catholic Church and the nobility gradually lost power as a consequence. 
a system based on free markets, liberal values, and a belief in progress evolved in Europe and spread to North America and Oceania. Like all social structures, the liberal order brought its own injustices. Most shamefully, slavery was revived and extended to newly colonized territories. In addition, the Industrial Revolution replaced cottage industries with factories and created an impoverished urban proletariat living at the very edge of subsistence. But during the 20th century, especially after the Second World War, life became measurably better even for most of the working class, and the middle orders continued to grow in prosperity and numbers. Some government action came into play, for example, subsidizing home ownership, building new infrastructure, and permitting labor unions. Linking such policies to the engines of economic growth promoted a mass movement to affluence, the premier achievement of liberal capitalism. Although liberal capitalism has generated many social, political, and environmental challenges, it has freed hundreds of millions from the widespread servility, entrenched cruelty, and capricious regimes that have dominated most of history. The material conditions of life have improved dramatically, not only in Europe and America, but throughout much of the world. In the 500 years up to around 1700, economic output per capita was flat, which means that a person of median income in 1700 was no better off, economically speaking, than the average person in 1200. By the mid-1800s, particularly in the West, economic output had increased markedly. The growth accelerated after 1940 and spread to the rest of the world. Bending the Arc of History Liberal capitalism first fueled Western dominance and then the economic rise of other countries as well. The economic boom that followed the end of the Second World War and extended to large parts of the world with the collapse of communism nurtured confidence about the global future. The key to increasing prosperity appeared to be in our hands. Optimistic notions about an arc of history bending inexorably to greater prosperity and social justice were embraced by both right and left, for example, by President George W. Bush and by President Barack Obama. Beginning in the 1970s, the arc started bending backward in the regions that gave birth to capitalism and modern democracy, Europe, Australia, and North America. Upward mobility for the middle and working classes began to stall, while the fortunes of the upper classes rose dramatically. Economies kept growing, but most of the benefits were harvested by the very rich, the top 1%, and especially the top 0.1%, while the middle classes lost ground. In 1945 to 1973, the top 1% in America captured just 4.9% of total U.S. income growth. But in the following two decades, the richest 1% gobbled up the majority of U.S. growth. The combined wealth of the richest 400 Americans now exceeds the total wealth of 185 million of their fellow citizens. In European countries, with their socialistic welfare policies, the upper middle class pays very high taxes, while the wealthiest find ways to hide their income sufficiently to maintain and even increase their dominance.
Surprisingly, in progressive-oriented countries such as Finland, stock ownership is considerably more concentrated among the very richest people than in the United States. The trend is not only a Western one. In avowedly socialist China, for example, the top 1% of the population hold about one-third of the country's wealth, and roughly 1,300 individuals hold about 20%. Since 1978, China's Gini coefficient, which measures inequality of wealth distribution, has tripled. Globally, the ultra-rich are an emergent aristocracy. Fewer than 100 billionaires together now own as much as half of the world's assets, the same proportion owned by around 400 people a little more than five years ago. The concentration of wealth is also clear in property ownership. In the United States, the proportion of land owned by the 100 largest private landowners grew by nearly 50% between 2007 and 2017, according to the Land Report. In 2007, this group owned a total of 27 million acres of land, equivalent to the area of Maine and New Hampshire combined. A decade later, the 100 largest landowners held 40.2 million acres, more than the entire area of New England. In much of the American West, billionaires have created vast estates that many fear will make the rest of the local population land poor. Land ownership in Europe, too, is becoming more concentrated in fewer hands. In Great Britain, where land prices have risen dramatically over the past decade, less than 1% of the population owns half of all the land. On the continent, farmland is being consolidated into larger holdings, while urban real estate has been falling into the hands of a small number of corporate owners and the mega-wealthy. In the United States, Long seen as the great land of opportunity, the chance of middle-class earners moving up to the top rungs of the earnings ladder has dropped by approximately 20% since the early 1980s. Across the 36 wealthier countries of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the richest citizens have taken an ever greater share of national GDP, and the middle class has become smaller. Much of the global middle class is heavily in debt, mainly because of high housing costs and looks increasingly like a boat in rocky waters, suggests the OECD. Rates of home ownership are stagnant or plummeting in the high-income world, including the United States, Canada, and Australia. Globalization of the economy has served the interests of the upper classes, but not the rest. For example, the shift of production to China alone has cost well over a half million manufacturing jobs from Great Britain, once an industrial powerhouse, and an estimated 3.4 million jobs from the United States. Economists may point to better aggregate growth and lower prices for consumers, but most people do not live in the aggregate. They live in their individual reality, which in many cases has gotten bleaker even as the economy overall has improved. In a world growing more bifurcated, elite communities are surrounded by urban poor and by small towns that are fading and becoming destitute. Globalization has revived the citadels of medieval France, writes Christophe Guilloui, a leftist geographer. Like the castle towns of Japan, 
or the walled cities of medieval Italy, a few choice locales are enclaves of privilege, while the less appealing places are inhabited by the newly servile classes. The New Power Nexus Just as the clerical elite shared power with the nobility in the feudal era, a nexus between the clerisy and the oligarchy lies at the core of neo-feudalism. These two classes often attend the same schools and live in similar neighborhoods in cities such as New York, San Francisco, or London. On the whole, they share a common worldview and are allies on most issues, though there are occasional conflicts, as there were between the medieval nobility and clergy. Certainly they hold similar views on globalism, cosmopolitanism, the value of credentials, and the authority of experts. This power nexus is enabled by technologies that once were widely seen as holding great promise for grassroots democracy and decision-making, but have become tools for surveillance and a consolidation of power. Even as blogs proliferate, given the appearance of information democracy, a small group of companies, mostly based on the west coast of the United States, exercise tightening control over the flow of information and the shape of the culture. Our new overlords do not wear chain mail or top hats, but instead direct our future in jeans and hoodies. These technocratic elites are the 21st century realization of what Daniel Bell prophetically labeled a new priesthood of power based on scientific expertise. The future of politics, in the high-income countries at least, will revolve around the ability of the dominant estates to secure the submission of the third estate. As in the Middle Ages, this requires imposing an orthodoxy that can normalize and justify a rigid class structure. The power of the nobility in the feudal order was justified through the agencies of religion and custom, blessed by the church. The modern clerisy often claim science as the basis of their doctrines and tout academic credentials as the key to status and authority. They seek to replace the bourgeois values of self-determination, family, community, and nation with progressive ideas about globalism, environmental sustainability, redefined gender roles, and the authority of experts. These values are inculcated through the clerisy's dominance over the institutions of higher learning and media, aided by the oligarchy's control of information technology and the channels of culture. Losing Faith in Liberal Democracy One consequence of the current economic trends is growing pessimism throughout the high-income world. Half of all Europeans believe that future generations will suffer worse economic conditions than they did, according to the Pew Research Center. In France, the pessimistic view predominates by 7 to 1. A pessimistic trend is also marked in the usually more upbeat societies of Australia, 64%, Canada, 67%, and the United States, 57%. Overall, Pew found that 56% of residents in advanced economies believe their children will do worse than they did. Pessimism is also growing in East Asia, which has been the economic dynamo of the current era. In Japan, 
a full three-quarters of those polled expect things to be worse for the next generation. And that expectation also predominates in such successful countries as Taiwan, Singapore, and South Korea. Many young people in China have reason for pessimism. In 2017, 8 million college graduates entered the job market to find they could only earn salaries that they might have gotten by going to work in a factory straight out of high school. Another sign of pessimism is declining birth rates, particularly in the high-income countries. In Europe, as well as Japan, and even in the once relatively fecund United States, fertility rates are nearing historic lows, even though young women state a wish to have more children. This demographic stagnation, another throwback to the Middle Ages, has various explanations, including women's high levels of participation in the workforce and a desire for more leisure time. Other reasons are economic, including a shortage of affordable family housing. Liberal capitalism in its heyday built large stretches of affordable housing in the upwardly mobile middle and working classes. But the new feudalism is creating a world where fewer and fewer people can afford to own homes. A trend of diminishing expectations has weakened support for liberal capitalism, even in solidly democratic countries, particularly among younger people. Far more than older generations, they are losing faith in democracy, not only in the United States, but also in Sweden, Australia, Great Britain, the Netherlands, and New Zealand. People born in the 1970s and 1980s are less strongly opposed to such undemocratic assertions of power as a military coup than are those born in the 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s. Today, there is a turning away from democratic liberalism around the world. Authoritarian leaders are consolidating power in countries that previously appeared to be on a liberalizing path. Xi Jinping in China, Vladimir Putin in Russia, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey. In more democratic countries, we can see a new longing for a strongman, such as the bombastic and often crude Donald Trump, as well as equivalents in Europe, some of them more functionally authoritarian. Many people who are losing faith in the prospects of liberty look for a paternalistic protector instead. Authoritarian leaders often rise by evoking the imagined glories of the past and stoking resentments both old and new. At the end of the Cold War, the world seemed to be traveling on a natural arc to a more democratic future. But today's new world order has instead become a promising springtime for dictators. Peasant Rebellions The feudal order did not go unchallenged in the Middle Ages. Periodically, there were peasant uprisings, sometimes led by religious dissidents. Could we see a kind of uprising from within the Third Estate today? The modern yeomanry can still mount a resistance, but the expanding serf class, without property or a stake in the system, might prove far more dangerous to the dominant orders. Like the revolutionaries of 1789, many in today's Third Estate are disgusted by the hauteur and hypocrisy of the upper classes. In pre-revolutionary times, French aristocrats and top clerics preached Christian charity while indulging in gluttony, 
sexual adventurism, and lavish spending. Today, many in the struggling middle and working classes see the well-to-do displaying their environmental piety by paying green indulgences through carbon credits and other virtue-signaling devices, while these enlightened policies impose extraordinarily high energy and housing costs on the less well-off. Alienated elements of the middle and working classes are responding with what might be likened to a modern peasant's rebellion. It can be seen in a series of angry votes and protests against the policies championed by the clerisy and oligarchy on climate change, global trade, and migration. This anger was expressed in the election of President Trump, in the support for Brexit, and in the rise of populist parties across Europe. Perhaps nowhere is the rebellion more evident than in France. A clear majority of French people regard globalization as a threat, while most executives, many trained at elite schools, see it as an opportunity. In an echo of 1789, the so-called gilets jaunes, yellow vests, demonstrated against higher gas taxes in the winter of 2018 to 2019. The protests began in small towns, but then moved into the Parisian suburbs. In the United States, restiveness among the Third Estate has prompted discussion among the oligarchs and the clerisy about expanding the scope of the welfare state with subsidies and direct cash payments for the masses, in the hope of staving off rebellion by those who no longer see a possibility of improving their own lot. But will that be enough? Is a feudal future inevitable? The return to feudalism is not necessarily inexorable. To change the course we are on, we first need to understand and acknowledge what is happening. We possess the advantages brought by centuries of liberal capitalism and free intellectual inquiry. We have knowledge of the past feudal era and of what democratic capitalism achieved. We do not have to be like the proverbial frog slowly boiling, unaware of its fate. Reversing the slide into a neo-feudal order will require the development of a new political paradigm, the current progressive approach to social justice with its attachment to a powerful central government will only strengthen the clerisy by vesting more authority in the expert class. On the other hand, the devotees of market fundamentalism, refusing to acknowledge the dangers of oligarchic power and the harm being done to the middle and working classes, might further a political trajectory that threatens the viability of capitalism itself. Some prominent business executives now recognize the problem and seek ways to remedy it. But there is much less awareness or concern among market ideologues on the right. A new perspective is needed, but it can emerge only when the reality of an emergent neo-feudalism is widely acknowledged and its dangers understood. There is still time to challenge this threat to liberal values. A man may be led by fate, wrote the great Soviet novelist Vasily Grossman, but he can refuse to follow. The future course of history is never inevitable if we retain the will to shape it. Chapter 2. The Enduring Allure of Feudalism Modern thinking tends to cast the Middle Ages 
as a benighted and backward time, although some historians regard that common perception as exaggerated and unfair. By the same token, feudalism is widely seen as a retrograde form of social and political organization, but it developed for a reason, to fill pressing needs of the time. As Roman governance dissolved, it left a power vacuum. Slowly, a new elite grew, and a new system of power relations that would last in some form for a millennium or more in some places. Its persistence suggests that some version of feudalism could still have an appeal in modern times. Feudalism in the Middle Ages varied from one place to another, but everywhere it centered on a distinct social hierarchy, the submission of inferiors to superiors, and restricted mobility for the lower classes, the vast majority of the population. Property was mostly consolidated into large manors. The urban middle classes dwindled as towns declined, and the independent peasantry mostly descended into serfdom. Large landowners took on public functions, justice, taxation, military, and offered protection to their dependent workers against the threat of marauders. In exchange, peasants surrendered the right to own land and the freedom to move off the estate their forebears had worked. The laborers, who were the key to economic production, lived a constrained existence in semi-bondage to a landowner. Most remained close to home. Eighty percent of Europe's population never went more than twenty miles from their place of birth. Above them, the nobility had their own form of subordination. The most powerful nobles received homage from lesser nobles, who became their vassals and were invested with a fief, feudum, a piece of land, which over time became hereditary. The vassal could lease parts of the fief to his dependents, both noble and common. A vassal pledged allegiance to his lord and usually was obligated to provide military service. Loyalty to one's immediate lord was the central organizing principle of society. I will love what thou lovest, I will hate what thou hatest, ran an Anglo-Saxon oath of commendation. Feudalism favored inheritors of the largest estates and the greatest nobles, who constructed castles to enhance and display their power. The system provided the measure of order and security in the chaos left behind by the breakdown of imperial or royal administration. For the most part, people were expected to stay in their hereditary station of life. No matter how capable an individual might be, the stigma of low birth was difficult, if not impossible, to shake off. The prevailing model of society consisted of three kinds of people, those who prayed, those who fought, and those who labored. As monarchies grew stronger, John of Salisbury, writing in 1180, portrayed an ideal political order in this organic image. The king corresponds to the head, the clergy to heart and soul, the nobility to arms, the peasants to the feet. For the peasants who labored in the fields, and even for the warrior nobility, literacy was considered unnecessary, and it had become mostly a monopoly of the clergy. The Catholic Church had considerable control over what was deemed correct thinking on religious and moral questions, and it claimed a universal authority, although its reach into the homes of the masses was limited 
and many pagan and folk beliefs persisted through the centuries. Still, the church's teachings helped maintain the hierarchical order of feudal society. In medieval Christian doctrine, the world we grasp with our senses is ephemeral, while the spiritual world is more real, and union with God is the supreme end. St. Augustine's view of the secular world as inherently hostile to the city of God took hold widely. Man's relationship to God was all-important. Between the 6th and 10th centuries, 26,000 lives of saints were written, but little new in the way of historical or scientific works. Everything—philosophy, painting, literature, politics—was built around a spiritual ideal, and the great buildings of the age represented the Bible in stone. The emphasis on a future life of the present world diminished the passionate commitment to the race publica and family that had shaped classical civilization. Commerce was regarded as essentially immoral, and wealth derived primarily from inherited agricultural estates worked by serfs. Christianity advanced a doctrine of spiritual equality among all people, but the conditions of life in this world were seen as much less important than the life to come. By urging the lower classes to accept their place in this world in exchange for the promise of something better in the hereafter, the Church may have been simply reflecting the common understanding of earthly reality, and religious organizations were the most likely source of succor, both material and spiritual, for the ubiquitous poor. But while high-ranking clerics often enjoyed their comfortable status as essentially a branch of the aristocracy, the medieval church's teaching did not encourage the hope of general uplift for the masses. Making the Case for Feudalism In the medieval worldview, society was held together by bonds of mutual obligation. At the top there were bonds within the clergy and the nobility, and bonds between the two, and a kind of mutual aid society. Then there were the obligations of common people to their superiors. Finally, the church provided a floor, a kind of early welfare state for the poor. Individualism was rejected in favor of the nobler concept of an interdependent commonwealth in a spiritually unified Christendom, but with strongly local social structures and loyalties. Even today, some regard this model of society as superior to the liberal capitalist form. The ideal of an interdependent ordered society gained new currency in the 19th century, partly as a reaction to the social upheaval and physical pollution of the early Industrial Revolution. Many in the Romantic movement saw much to admire in medieval civilization, as shown in the writings of John Keats, Thomas Carlyle, Matthew Arnold, and Anthony Trollope, and later in Oscar Wilde, D. H. Lawrence, Stefan Georga, and Thomas Mann. These writers attacked what they saw as the bourgeois philistinism and social leveling inherent in capitalist societies. Many of them saw stupidity in the middle class and believed that artists and writers could best address the needs of the proletariat. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels conceded that the medieval guilds and localized markets, as well as custom, had provided artisans and peasants with a modicum of security, 
which had largely been lost under the pressure of the capitalist market system. Engels even suggested that the Saxon serf in the 12th century was no worse off than the workers of his own time, who could no longer count on custom and tradition to protect them. Some enlightened capitalists and aristocrats in the mid-19th century supported steps to offer what Marx called a proletarian alms bag to keep the masses from both destitution and rebellion. Similarly, some progressively inclined billionaires today have embraced the ideas of guaranteed minimum income, housing subsidies, and other transfer payments to keep the potentially restive masses from destitution or rebellion. In the later 19th century, some British conservatives advocated something like a capitalist feudalism, where relations between employer and worker would regain the mutuality believed to have existed in pre-industrial times. Alternatively, a concept of feudal socialism would become known, in less provocative terms, as Tory democracy. In Russia, where a liberal system never truly emerged, romantics like Tolstoy, as well as right-wing Slavophiles and social revolutionaries, rejected the liberal capitalism of the West and instead evoked a return to the mere, a form of community ownership left over from the days of serfdom. Light and salvation will come from below, wrote Dostoevsky. The key to social reform would be the mujik, the devout, ill-educated, impoverished peasant, not the sophisticated, Europeanized intellectuals and rising capitalists of the big cities. Many powerful right-wing movements of the early 20th century, National Socialism, Fascism, and their imitators elsewhere, also expressed a nostalgia for the Middle Ages. The Italian poet and futurist Gabriella D'Annunzio espoused a socialist romanticism that helped lay the foundations of the fascist corporate state. In France, the leaders of Action Francaise sought to bring about a counter-Renaissance and reimpose the hierarchical corporative structure of the Ancien Régime. In England, fascist sympathizers like Oswald Mosley lamented the passing of merry old England, swept away by the competitive reality of ethnically mixed modern cities. Even today, some of the European far-right see in the Middle Ages an affirmation of traditional Christian values and find inspiration in the crusader response to assaults from Islamic aggression. Contemporary Neo-Medievalism In ways that few could have expected three decades ago, a reaction against liberal ideals has been gaining force in many countries. After the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia has found inspiration in its czarist past, a time of vigorous imperial expansion. Perhaps more remarkably, the Russian Orthodox Church, which was marginalized and often persecuted by the Soviet authorities, has gained moral authority under Vladimir Putin. The Russian regime has even harked back to the period of Mongol domination as a way of tying the state to Central and East Asia. China's communist leaders while officially genuflecting to Maoist ideology, are finding something of value in folk religion and even Confucianism, so reviled by the founders of the People's Republic. It turns out that old virtues like honesty, filial obedience, and respect for hierarchy have their uses in the modern age. 
Singapore's longtime premier, Li Kuan Yu, has urged the Chinese regime to adopt Confucianism as a defining feature of Asian capitalism. Even in the West, the values that drove the development of the modern world, such as confidence in progress and the benefits of economic growth for the general well-being, have come under challenge. In the 1960s, the environmental movement expressed a growing and understandable concern over the devastation of the natural world by the modern industrial economy. An ideal of low or even negative economic and demographic growth was popularized by E.F. Schumacher with his Small is Beautiful philosophy, which would prove particularly consequential in California in the 1970s. As in the 19th century reactions against industrialization, environmental concerns raised nostalgia for a bygone age. Like a medieval millenarian, Prince Charles of Britain asserts that we are running out of time to save the world. Charles has emerged as perhaps the premier feudal critic of capitalism, as one socialist publication put it. He views free market capitalism as a scourge upon the earth and promotes a new kind of noblesse oblige centered on concern for the natural world and for social harmony. Environmentalism has even led to a revival of the notion of poverty as a virtue. In the Middle Ages, poverty was regarded as the inescapable condition of life for most people, while monks adopted voluntary poverty as beneficial to spiritual growth. Today, poverty sometimes appears to be considered good for the environment. Even the swelling slums of the developing world have been viewed as something to celebrate more than a cause for alarm, in large part because of the slum dwellers' low consumption of energy and other resources. Michael Kimmelman, an urbanist writing for the New York Times, calls slums not just a blight, but a potential template for organic urbanism. Many intellectuals, architects, and planners have promoted values reminiscent of the medieval past as being in better harmony with human nature. Some conservative thinkers, such as the late Roger Scruton, have been critical of the disorderly modern urban world and especially of the suburban culture created by liberal capitalism. Scruton favored a return to a geography of densely populated cities surrounded by a protected countryside without the middle landscape of suburbs, the places where the property-owning middle classes overwhelmingly live today. Likewise, some leading architects, including Britain's Richard Rogers, seek a return to something like the medieval city with its public market squares, which they consider a more livable alternative to the modern suburban sprawl. Such backward-looking ideas have been offered as remedies for the weaknesses and failings of modern society. But they might also provide a rationale to discourage upward mobility for the many and to concentrate property in fewer hands. Chapter 3 The Rise and Decline of Liberal Capitalism Liberal capitalism weakened and dissolved the feudal order, allowing a robust middle class to rise. More efficient agricultural practices brought growth into the static economies that had mostly benefited rentiers and inheritors, gradually lifting small property owners such as the English yeomanry. 
commercial growth empower the innovative, aggressive, risk-taking entrepreneurs. New technology, expanding trade, new ideas, and developing institutions transformed feudal society beyond recognition. Where class privilege remained in place over a shifting base, particularly in France, the Third Estate rose up in a violent assault on the last vestiges of feudalism. The entrepreneurs who chipped away at the feudal order did not generally come from the nobility, who in some cases were prohibited or socially discouraged from engaging in commerce. Aristocratic elites did sometimes give valuable funding and sponsorship to entrepreneurs, many of whom were from groups that had long been persecuted, including itinerant workers and dissenting Protestants, as well as Jews. These commercial risk-takers played a major part in creating our modern world, as their technological improvements, opening of trade routes, and building of cities ushered in an era of unprecedented economic growth. Liberal capitalism laid the basis for Western economic hegemony. In the year 1000, the gross product of China and of India each easily exceeded that of all Western Europe combined, and the same was true of the Islamic Empire. China remained ahead of Europe in technology until around 1450, according to Joseph Needham. For example, Chinese junks were the world's most advanced ships in the 13th and 14th centuries, spreading the Middle Kingdom's influence throughout Southeast Asia and beyond. As late as the 17th century, India and China were not only more populous than Europe, but enjoyed an industrial infrastructure that was equal, at the very least. The rise of liberal capitalism first in Europe and then in North America dramatically altered the picture. From 1500 to 1913, Europe's share of global GDP rose from 17.8 to 33%, while China's share dropped from 25 to 8%. By 1913, Western Europe's per capita GDP was roughly seven times that of China or India, while the per capita GDP of the United States surpassed that of these large and venerable nations by a factor of nine. In the later 20th century, the benefits of liberal capitalism spread to East Asia as well, fueling the success of Japan and South Korea, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. China Challenges the Liberal Model The recent ascent of China presents a serious challenge to liberal capitalism as the model for the global future. China's share of the world's economic output has grown dramatically, from 4% in 1990 to a projected 21% in 2022. Even if this progress slows due to demographic, environmental, and other factors, China is likely to reshape much of the world's economic future with its model of state-directed capitalism, or socialism, with Chinese characteristics. China's rise is occurring outside the realm of normative Western capitalist values. Unlike Japan in the late 20th century, China never accepted the primary lodestars of liberal civilization, such as individual political and property rights. Instead, it has developed an alternative to liberal capitalism, and its principles are not only being inculcated in its own population, but also being exported to universities and governments around the world. China's new model of capitalism 
has profoundly anti-liberal aspects, including a distinct sense of social hierarchy, an autocratic central state, an enforced ideology and thought control. Despite a formal adherence to Marxist and Maoist egalitarianism, China today is nurturing a stratified class order, as powerful business elites and their allies in the government construct a system of permanent caste privilege. The state employs ever more intrusive technology to impose strict censorship with few protections of privacy. If the U.S. has long sought to make the world safe for democracy, suggests one analyst, China's leaders crave a world that is safe for authoritarianism. China's blending of capitalism with authoritarianism is emerging as a persuasive model for economic development. The Chinese model is spreading its influence around East Asia and farther afield, not only in Central Asia, but also in South America, parts of Europe, and especially Africa, where there are now an estimated one million Chinese residents. Many people in these countries take inspiration not from the example of New York or London or even Tokyo, but instead from the Beijing Consensus. Most residents of India, the world's largest democracy, believe that China will replace the United States as the world's dominant country within 20 years. At the same time, India's political leadership is adopting illiberal views and policies, including ethnic nationalism, suppression of free speech, and Hindu dogmatism expressed in public policy. Back to Stagnation As China's power has waxed, the economies in most advanced countries have stagnated. After a period of rapid expansion, economic growth in the large advanced countries, with the occasional exception of the United States, has slowed to a rate no more than half that of a generation ago. Gains in productivity in the last decade were barely half those in the previous decade, and barely one-fourth the average increases between 1920 and 1970. The economist Robert Gordon notes that the newest wave of technology, while dramatically changing how we communicate and get information, has done very little to improve the material conditions of life, particularly in housing and transportation. The slowdown of population growth, especially in high-income countries, is another aspect of societal stagnation. In Europe, low birth rates have been common for almost a half-century now. Europe's population is on track to fall from 738 million to roughly 482 million by 2100. Retirees in a shrunken Germany will then outnumber children under the age of 15 by a ratio of 4 to 1. The demographic decline in East Asia has been, if anything, more dramatic. Over the past few decades, fertility has dropped precipitously in China, Taiwan, South Korea, Hong Kong, and Singapore, all with birth rates now well below replacement level. Perhaps the most extreme case is Japan, where the decline had started by the 1960s. If the current trend continues, the island nation's population will drop from 127 million to under 80 million by 2065, according to Japan's National Institute of Population and Social Security Research. The Chinese population, is projected to start declining too. By 2050, China is expected to have 60 million fewer people under age 15, 
a loss approximately the size of Italy's total population. At the same time, China will have nearly 190 million more people who are age 65 and over, approximately equal to the population of Pakistan, the world's fourth most populous country. The ratio of retirees to working people in China is expected to have more than tripled by then, which would be one of the most rapid demographic shifts in history. The global demographic trend will reshape economies and societies going forward. Today, a majority of the world's people live in countries with fertility rates well below replacement level. This number will grow to 75% by 2050, according to the United Nations. Many societies, including some in the developing world, can expect a rapidly aging population and a precipitous decline in workforce numbers. Overall, world population growth could all but end by 2040, says Wolfgang Lutz, and be in decline by 2060. Shrinking populations in advanced countries will threaten economic growth by limiting the size of the labor force and will undermine the fiscal viability of the welfare state. This is one reason for the receptiveness of Western governments to high levels of immigration from poorer countries, which continue to produce offspring more prodigiously than wealthier countries. Between now and 2050, half of all global population growth is expected to take place in Africa. A widening demographic imbalance between the poorer and wealthier countries could cause more disruption in both spheres and lead to a reprise of the mass migrations that did much to undermine the ancient empires of Europe and Asia. Social conflict resulting from high levels of immigration from poorer countries is already a prominent feature of Western politics and seems likely to fester in the coming decades. The Technology Gap Technological advances once fueled growing prosperity for the many. Today, automation and the use of artificial intelligence promise to accelerate social divisions both between and within countries. Although it is not clear that these technologies will result in fewer jobs overall, some sectors are especially threatened, notably manufacturing, transportation, and retail, sectors that historically provided steady blue-collar employment. But jobs in those sectors may be even more threatened by regulatory changes, largely justified on environmental grounds that restrict growth in tangible industries. What is more likely than mass unemployment in the Western world is a continuing decline of the middle class, as many are forced to subsist in the so-called gig economy. Between 2005 and 2014, the percentage of families with flat or decreasing real incomes rose to over 60% in the 25 most advanced economies. A technologically driven society tends to show a widening gap between the elect, who are highly gifted in science and tech, and the many who are not. Today, it takes only a small cadre of coders, financial experts, and marketing mavens to build a billion-dollar business without much required in the way of blue-collar workers or even middle managers. In the long run, we could see something of the stark future depicted in The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. We are turning into two races, writes Richard Fernandez. Eloy, who play video games, and Morlocks, who program them.
In the face of these social challenges, the intellectual classes in the higher-income countries, in the universities, the media, and the arts, almost universally seek to deconstruct the values that guided their country's ascent and provided the foundation for widespread prosperity. Instead of concerning themselves with addressing the consequences of economic stagnation, more poverty, social immobility, class conflict, many in the clerisy and even the oligarchy promote the ideal of sustainability over broad-based economic growth. Just as the medieval clergy preached against materialism, leading figures in today's academia and the media, and even some among the corporate elite, look askance at the very idea of a dynamic economy, a spirit of innovation, and a commitment to improving everyday life. Some even suggest that progress is a myth. In this way, the clerisy reinforced the pessimistic notion that upward mobility is a relic of the past, and that our primary tasks now are to redress social grievances and protect the environment, rather than seek ways to spread wealth and opportunity. The new feudalism won't feature intrepid knights in armor or fortified castles or raise soaring cathedrals filled with liturgical chants. Instead, it will boast dazzling new technology and be wrapped in a creed of globalism and environmental piety. Yet for all its modernity, the coming age looks set to replace liberal dynamism and intellectual pluralism with an orthodoxy that puts a premium on stasis and accepts social hierarchy as the natural order of things. Part 2. The Oligarchs When there is a general change in conditions, it is as if the entire creation had changed and the whole world altered. Ibn Khaldun, 14th Century Chapter 4 High-Tech Feudalism Technological innovation has long been connected with the growth of capitalist economies. The capitalist revolution of the early modern period had far-reaching consequences, disrupting old rhythms of life, as Fernand Brodel explained. But capitalism and new technology together laid the basis for a broadly shared improvement in material well-being and for social mobility. By the same token, the recent tech revolution was once widely seen as not only transformative, but generally beneficial. Some have envisioned a new civilization with great opportunities for human development and societal improvement. Yet today, we see diminishing social mobility and little real material progress for most people, as economic power is increasingly dominated by fewer companies, particularly in the finance and technology sectors. Our future is coming to look like the high-tech middle age that the Japanese futurist Taichi Sakaya predicted more than three decades ago. The pioneers of the modern tech industry were once celebrated as exemplars of capitalist competition, illustrating what Joseph Schumpeter called the creative destruction that breaks up monopolies and allows others to rise from below. But today's tech leaders increasingly resemble an exclusive ruling class, controlling a few exceptionally powerful companies, and like aristocracies everywhere, they are often resistant to any dispersion of their power. 
As they conquer ever more of the precious digital real estate, they are building a more stratified economic and social order, with widening class divisions, not only in the United States, but around the world. The Birth of the New Oligarchy California's Santa Clara Valley seems an unlikely incubator for neo-feudalism. Half a century ago, it was just beginning to change from an agricultural region into a vast middle-class suburb. Wealthy people from San Francisco bought elegant estates in the South Bay and created an elite horse country alongside the farms. But most of the growth took the form of modest tracts inhabited by the middle and working classes, including many veterans. The more people who saw the nicest place in the world to live with their own eyes and realized it was no more expensive than back home, observes one Bay Area native, the more they concluded, I want to live here too. By the 1950s and 1960s, these pleasant surroundings were attracting skilled but decidedly middle-class technicians and engineers, including Lee DeForest, inventor of the vacuum tube. An emerging tech economy was supercharged by massive defense and space contracts. UC Berkeley, the nation's premier public university, was located not far to the north. Closer by was Stanford, which excelled in the physical sciences and established the Stanford Research Park in 1951. Stanford graduates had already founded Hewlett-Packard in 1939, and an engineering professor who became provost of the university, Frederick Terman, nurtured tech companies in the area. In the ensuing decades, the Bay Area, including San Francisco, became the world's leading technology hub. This rapid technological growth resulted in the consolidation of wealth and power in a handful of companies. A relatively small cadre of engineers, data scientists, and marketers, a tiny sliver of humanity, began reshaping the world's economy and its culture as well. In the Middle Ages, the power of the nobility rested on the control of land and the right to bear arms. The power of today's ascendant tech aristocracy comes mainly from exploiting natural monopolies in web-based business. The winners of the digital land grab are a few companies located mostly in Silicon Valley and in the Puget Sound region. Having seized the strategic digital territory, they are eclipsing and replacing the old industrial economy. By 2018, four tech firms, Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook, had a combined net worth amounting to nearly one quarter of the S&P 500 top 50 and equal to the GDP of France. Seven of the world's 10 most valuable companies are in this sector. The tech giants have also generated huge individual fortunes. Eight of the 20 richest people on the planet acquired their wealth in the tech industry. Nine of the 13 richest people under age 40 are in the tech industry, and all live in California. Only China, home to nine of the world's 20 largest tech firms, presents any kind of challenge to California's tech aristocracy. From Garages to Gargantua Silicon Valley was once a center of grassroots innovation, where tech companies were started in suburban garages, as epitomized by the remarkable story of Apple, 
Now, the historic startup culture has been strangled by the largest companies with their fantastic resources. Many startups are soon acquired by established firms rather than having a chance to grow large themselves. Antitrust actions in the United States have fallen by 61% since the early 1980s, leaving the tech oligarchy with almost unlimited power under administrations of both parties to acquire or crush competitors. In recent years, Facebook has swallowed potential competitors such as Instagram, WhatsApp, and Oculus with little resistance from regulators. Google is among the most voracious in acquisitions, purchasing a new venture every other week in one year and a total of 240 companies as of January 2020. Armed with massive war chests and the means to buy the best talent, a small number of companies have achieved monopolistic or duopolistic power over some of the world's most lucrative markets. Google controls nearly 90% of search advertising, Facebook almost 80% of mobile social traffic, and Amazon nearly 40% of the world's cloud business, along with 75% of U.S. ebook sales. Google and Apple together provide over 95% of operating software for mobile devices. Microsoft still accounts for over 80% of the software that runs personal computers around the world. As a result, the once buoyant grassroots tech economy now suffers a seriously degraded condition. The entrepreneur not embraced by the big venture firms lives largely at the sufferance of the tech overlords. One online publisher uses a Star Trek analogy to describe his firm's status with Google. It's a bit like being assimilated by the Borg. You get cool new powers, but having been assimilated, if your implants were ever removed, you'd certainly die. That basically captures our relationship to Google. The rush into artificial intelligence is likely to strengthen the dominant position of those firms that already have enormous reservoirs of both money and talent. A few firms will probably join the oligarchy over time, and some familiar ones may go out of existence or be acquired by others. But the top firms tend to exist as properties of a small number of financiers and technologists who operate within a narrow, self-reverential universe. This concentration of technological power portends a far less democratic future. With their huge cash reserves, the tech oligarchs have plans to dominate older industries like entertainment, finance, education, and retail, as well as industries of the future, autonomous cars, drones, space exploration, and most critically, artificial intelligence. Firms like Google, Amazon, and Apple have invested billions to gain post-position in both traditional and emerging industries. Isabella Kaminska, a technology analyst, compares the giant tech firms to the Soviet planners who operated Gosplan, the economic planning agency that allocated state resources across the USSR. Some may consider it preferable to cede such power to private capital rather than party hacks, but it still amounts to a great deal of power in a few hands, with little accountability. The China Syndrome China, with its lack of legal restraints, may prove to be the cutting edge of a new technocratic despotism. 
its tech sector is second only to that of the United States and increasingly sees itself as Silicon Valley's successor. In certain sectors, including e-commerce and mobile payments, China has already established a powerful lead. Much of China's technology boom results from massive investments by both state-sponsored and private firms in leading-edge technologies. In 2016, this investment was greater than that of Japan, Germany, and South Korea combined, and it produced 10 times as many new graduates in engineering, technology, science, and medicine as the United States. China has spawned its own plutocratic elite, too. The number of Chinese billionaires in 2017 was just behind the number of billionaires in the United States and growing much faster. Since 2000, many billionaires from tech and other sectors have entered the Communist Party in a seamless manner that Mao Zedong would never have countenanced. China thus has two intertwined elites, one political, the other economic. The rise of a technocratic elite may be said to fit neatly into the Marxist notion of scientific socialism, mobilizing scientists, technicians, and engineers for the common good. But it has demolished the basic egalitarian ethos of socialism. Marx envisioned the working class rising up against the bourgeoisie, but did not anticipate that technically skilled people could become yet another class with their own capabilities and worldview. The merger of a wealthy tech elite with the political ruling class has created an aristocracy of intellect that replicates the historical role of the Mandarin class in Chinese culture and governance. Perhaps the most disturbing part of China's technological growth is in the government's use of artificial intelligence to regulate society and public opinion. Sophisticated algorithms are employed to control everything from legal proceedings to permission for marriage. The Communist Party is putting artificial intelligence to work, monitoring businesses, in part to make sure their activities are congruent with party priorities. The regime also uses facial recognition technology and social credit scoring, which includes everything from credit worthiness and work performance to political reliability. Surveillance of citizens is sometimes done with the unconscionable connivance of major American tech firms, some of which are also experimenting with bringing similar tools to the private marketplace. In the future, the Chinese use of surveillance technology could be a model for other countries seeking to employ technology to regulate the lives of citizens. In fact, this kind of surveillance capacity is already being sold to other countries, particularly in Africa, as a tool for regimes to control their populations and spy on political opponents. Clean Rich, or High-Tech Monopolists To a remarkable extent, the tech elites have presented themselves as dynamic entrepreneurial outsiders who want to make the world better. In the early days of the tech revolution, some imagined an almost utopian communitarian society on the horizon. The California author Stuart Brand, writing in Rolling Stone in 1972, predicted that when computers became widely available, we would all become computer bums, all more empowered as individuals and as cooperators. It would be a new era of enhanced, spontaneous creation and of human interaction. The 
early digital idealists envisioned a sharing web that functioned free from the constraints of the commercial order. Instead, a technocratic economy is engendering a new kind of hierarchy, favoring highly skilled technicians and engineers. Their dominance will grow as technology plays an ever greater role in the economy, while the value of labor further declines. Americans, long enamored of the entrepreneurial spirit and technological progress, have been slow to see the tech oligarchy as a threat. Leftist historians, alert to the dangers of aristocracy, have tended to focus their ire on financial companies that may be large and powerful, but aren't nearly as wealthy or as influential in shaping the economy as the tech sector, which seeks to capture virtually every other industry, including finance. At the Occupy Wall Street protests in 2011, anti-capitalist demonstrators held moments of silence and prayer for the memory of Steve Jobs, a particularly aggressive capitalist. Some people still see Bill Gates, a clear monopolist, as one of the meritorious entrepreneurs, notes Thomas Piketty. One progressive writer, David Callahan, portrays the tech oligarchs, along with their allies in the financial sector, as a kind of benign plutocracy, in contrast to those who built their fortunes on resource extraction, manufacturing, and material consumption. Yet America's tech titans have attained oligopolistic sway over markets comparable to that of moguls like John Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, or Cornelius Vanderbilt. They may wear baseball caps rather than top hats, but their economic and cultural power is vast and likely to become far more so. Chapter 5. The Belief System of the New Oligarchy in important ways, the tech moguls are quite different from both the industrialists of the late 19th century and the managerial elite of the 20th. They are neither ambitious parvenus nor carefully bred products of the corporate organization. It is not raw ambition or managerial acumen, but technical talent that has defined them and made them fabulously wealthy and influential. As a group, they are far less diverse than the tinkerers and artisans who propelled the Industrial Revolution. Most come from the upper end of the middle class. Many have at least one parent, sometimes two, with a scientific background. They generally went to elite colleges, although not all of them graduated. Some were technical prodigies even in high school. Not for them the tedium of a newspaper route or a part-time job in a pizza joint or the mailroom. The tech elites, wrote one observer, are typically long on brilliance but short on hardship. Despite their sheltered origins, the tech oligarchs tend to regard themselves as more enlightened and progressive than their industrial-era predecessors. In the 1970s and 1980s, the image they projected was the latest incarnation of the American hippie, a kind of high-tech bandit, having more in common with artists than with the inhabitants of the corridors of corporate power. The early tech executives, such as those running Hewlett-Packard and Intel, also tended to be paternalistic in their management practices and to consider themselves more forward-thinking than the corporate managers of an earlier time. 
The Meritocratic Ideology The people running today's IT firms do not see middle managers, much less assembly line workers or skilled artisans, as peers. Their worldview is aligned with the upper echelon of the educated workforce. High numbers of science PhDs are found in their ranks, including CEOs, and a survey of 45 tech executives found that the vast majority had degrees from elite universities in engineering, computer science, or business. Some of those with no degrees were dropouts from elite institutions. Software is an IQ business, said Bill Gates, himself a Harvard dropout. Microsoft must win the IQ war, or we won't have a future. The tech oligarchs are creating something similar to what Aldous Huxley called a scientific caste system. It is unlike the industrial era, when corporations depended on people with a wide range of skills, managers and marketers, engineers and technicians, warehouse workers and salespeople. These jobs were often unionized, at least in the manufacturing and energy sectors, so that upper management was compelled at least to consider diverse views on how the business should operate. In contrast, tech firms are rarely unionized, and none of the largest Internet-based firms are. Crucially, the tech giants employ relatively few people in proportion to their revenues. IT firms like Google and Facebook generate up to 300 times the market value per employee as the likes of GM, Home Depot, and Kroger. Only the energy sector, whose wealth is based on natural resources, is higher. In addition, IT companies and the specialized contractors that service them depend heavily on thousands of lower-paid foreign workers, some of whom are close to being indentured servants. What do today's oligarchs want? The tech oligarchs have not produced a coherent political manifesto laying out their vision for the future. Yet it's clear that the IT elite, in firms such as Amazon, Google, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft, share some ideas that add up to a common agenda. In the developing technocratic worldview, there's little place for upward mobility, except within the charmed circle at the top. The middle and working classes are expected to become marginal. While the oligarchs might speak of a commitment to building what Mark Zuckerberg calls meaningful community, they rarely mention upward mobility. Having interviewed 147 digital company founders, Gregory Ferenstein notes that they generally don't expect their workers or consumers to achieve more independence by starting their own companies or even owning houses. Most, Ferenstein adds, believe that an increasingly greater share of economic wealth will be generated by a smaller slice of very talented or original people. Everyone else will come to subsist on some combination of part-time entrepreneurial gig work and government aid. Berenstein says that many tech titans, in contrast to business leaders of the past, favor a radically expanded welfare state. Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, Travis Kalanick, former head of Uber, and Sam Altman, founder of Y Combinator, all favor a guaranteed annual income in part to allay fears of insurrection by a vulnerable and struggling workforce. Yet unlike the penthouse Bolsheviks of the 1930s, 
They have no intention of allowing their own fortunes to be squeezed. Instead, the middle class would likely foot much of the bill for guaranteed wages, health care, free college, and housing assistance, along with subsidies for gig workers who do not receive benefits from their employers. This model could best be described as oligarchical socialism. The redistribution of resources would meet the material needs of the working class and the declining middle class, but it would not promote upward mobility or threaten the dominance of the oligarchs. This represents a sea change from the old industrial economy. Rather than acquiring property and gaining a modicum of self-sufficiency, workers can now expect a serf-like future of rented apartments and frozen prospects. Unable to grow into property-owning adults, they will depend on subsidies to meet their basic needs. Thomas Piketty observed that the tech oligarchs, like some 19th-century industrialists, expect the growing influence of technically gifted people to destroy artificial inequalities, while highlighting natural inequalities. But the new tech aristocracy also regard themselves as intrinsically more deserving of their wealth and power than the old managerial elites or the grubby corporate speculators. They believe that they are not just creating value, but building a better world. While earlier technologies were disruptive of established ways, their purpose was generally to allow people to do things more cheaply and efficiently, to boost productivity and make life easier. Technology was a traditional action made effective, as the sociologist Marcel Moss described it. On the whole, it was evolutionary, not revolutionary. But for many in the new elite, technology represents far more than efficiency or convenience. It is both the beginning and the end, the material equivalent of a spiritual journey to nirvana. Google's vision of the future is characterized by immersive computing, in which the real and virtual worlds blend together. Tech leaders like Ray Kurzweil, longtime head of engineering at Google, speak about creating a post-human future, dominated by artificial intelligence and controlled by computers and those who program them. They look forward to having the capacity to reverse aging and to download their consciousness into computers. This vision rests on a faith in, or an obsession with, technological determinism, in which new technology is our evolutionary successor. But is this what most people want the future to be? The Cultural Revolution What the tech oligarchs are already doing to control the culture should raise alarm. The IT revolution once appeared to be launching a more democratic era in communications, with the demassified media that Alvin Toffler optimistically predicted. But what looked like a more diverse and open media world, where anyone could be a reporter or reach an audience, is turning into one where a very few companies control the information pipelines. Nearly two-thirds of U.S. adults now get their news through Facebook or Google. Millennials in both the United States and the U.K. are almost three times as likely to get their information from these platforms as from print, television, or radio. The power of the tech oligarchy has grown at a time when print publishing and the firms that have dominated it 
are experiencing a secular and probably irreversible decline. Between 2001 and 2017, the publishing industry, books, newspapers, magazines, lost 290,000 jobs, a decrease of 40%. Any newspaper or magazine today will have an online presence, but with Facebook and Google dominating the growth in online advertising, it's exceedingly difficult for new or smaller publications to survive. While Google alone made $4.7 billion from news publishers in 2018, the industry continues to shrink. When you look at what's evolved and the amount of revenue that's going to the Googles and Facebooks of the world, says Alan Fisco, president of the Seattle Times, we are getting the crumbs off the table. Even as they devastate the old media, the oligarchs also have the means to purchase some of its most venerable survivors. Since 2010, tech moguls and their relatives have bought the New Republic, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and the long-distressed Time magazine, purchased for $190 million. In China, the estimable South China Morning Post was taken over by Alibaba, one of the country's largest online retailers. Owning publications appeals to the vanity of tech oligarchs, giving them enhanced entree to literary and journalistic circles. The publications acquired in this way get an extra edge. They can enjoy the luxury of producing content without worrying much about money. There are often ritual denials that the new owners of these publications will influence content, but this is in total contradiction with experience. When the equally rapacious moguls of the early 20th century like the McCormicks of Chicago or William Randolph Hearst, bought newspapers, they pushed an agenda of imperial expansion, anti-unionism, and resistance to those who would threaten their fortunes. Today's mass media already tend to favor the oligarchy's progressive views on gender, race, and environmental issues, for example, but with reservations about the concentration of power. Financial dependency is likely to encourage more support for the interests of the tech industry. News is only one area of the culture being seized by the tech oligarchy. Amazon has achieved enormous influence over the book industry. It is by far the largest seller of books, accounting for upwards of 50% of all paper sales and 90% of ebook sales, and it possesses the ability to allow knockoffs of published titles. Even well-established publishers like Hachette and Macmillan have found themselves held hostage if they don't adhere to Amazon's requests. The entertainment industry is also being swallowed up by the tech giants. YouTube, acquired by Google in 2006, has become determinative in the music industry, although artists often do not get the compensation they traditionally received. Music streaming and music videos have become yet another way that firms like Google gain access to ever more personal data, which they can sell to advertisers. Much the same is occurring in video broadly. Netflix, a company financed by Silicon Valley venture firms, is now estimated to be worth more than any of the film studios, and along with Amazon, it produces much of the award-winning television programming. In 2018, Netflix spent more on programming than any of the major studios. Netflix and Amazon each have well over 100 million subscribers, 
far beyond the clientele achieved by the established cable firms. Not satisfied with controlling information pipelines, the tech oligarchs have been moving to shape content as well. Controllers like those at Facebook and Twitter seek to curate content on their sites or even eliminate views they find objectionable, which tend to be conservative views, according to former employees. Algorithms intended to screen out hate groups often spread a wider net, notes one observer, since the programmers have trouble distinguishing between hate groups and those who might simply express views that conflict with the dominant culture of Silicon Valley. That managers of social media platforms aim to control content is not merely the perception of conservatives. Over 70% of Americans believe that social media platforms censor political views, according to a recent Pew study. With their quasi-monopoly status, Facebook and Google don't have to worry about competing with anyone, as the tech entrepreneur Peter Thiel observes, so they can indulge their own prejudices to a greater extent than the businesses that might be concerned about alienating customers. With their tightening control over media content, the tech elite are now situated to exert a cultural predominance that is unprecedented in the modern era. It recalls the cultural influence of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, but with more advanced technology. The Right of Surveillance The medieval church may have exercised enormous sway over what people believed to be true and proper, but it had nothing like today's tools for monitoring private actions and thoughts. The new technology that allows such erasure of privacy has become central to generating tech wealth. Personal data is the raw material of the digital age. Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, sees the exploitation of personal data as the electricity of the 21st century. Alibaba and other super platforms like Facebook, Google, and WeChat operate largely as gatekeepers for those who wish to navigate the digital economy, which means they control access to a considerable part of the overall economy. This position gives them enormous power to collect personal information on users. When Google and Facebook and other gatekeepers do this collecting, our behavior is transformed into a product, writes one observer. This data now accounts for up to 20% of Europe's GDP, and as it becomes more important, we become like serfs living under what the French analyst Gaspard Koenig describes as digital feudalism. Our daily lives no longer belong to us alone, but are relentlessly commodified. This is, of course, the natural goal of all the major tech firms, and as Jaron Lanier suggests, it all serves to percolate creepiness and inspire justified paranoias. Surveillance might go on with little warning to customers. Facebook already admits to having patented technology that would enable snooping on their users by remotely turning on a smartphone's microphone to start recording, although they deny using it. In 2018, Amazon's in-home device Alexa was found to be eavesdropping on people's conversations. Once exposed, such intrusions are often ended, at least temporarily. But there is reason to believe that privacy ranks low in tech company priorities. Google's former executive chairman, Eric Schmidt, once told CNBC, 
If you have something that you don't want anyone to know, maybe you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. The prospect of life under surveillance by technocratic oligarchs is a terrifying one. If ExxonMobil attempted to insert itself into every element of our lives like this, writes Ellie Mae O'Hagan in The Guardian, there might be a concerted grassroots movement to curb its influence. Irrespective of personal politics, we must begin to recognize the threats to our freedom posed by today's benign plutocracy. Chapter 6. Feudalism in California, Harbinger of the Future Perhaps the best way to picture the future contours of high-tech feudalism is to examine the present conditions in its fountainhead, California. Many progressives see the Golden State, and especially Silicon Valley, as the harbinger of a better, greener, more egalitarian future. Yet the reality could not be more different. Rather than a model of upward mobility, California is a place now dominated by a small class of exceedingly wealthy and well-connected people resembling the nobility of the Middle Ages or the elites of the Gilded Age. California has changed dramatically from the opportunity-rich environment that lured so many millions to the state. From the beginning, California promised much, wrote Kevin Starr, the premier chronicler of the state's history. While yet barely a name on the map, it entered American awareness as a symbol of renewal. It was a final frontier of geography and of expectation. Since its entrance to the Union in the mid-19th century, the Golden State was known as a place where ambitious outsiders from diverse backgrounds could prosper and realize their dreams. But today, more Californians feel the state is headed in the wrong direction than the right according to a recent poll by the Public Policy Institute of California, and the proportion reaches above 55% in the inland areas. Voters dislike the state legislature even more than they dislike President Trump. Consumer confidence hit a three-year low in 2019, even as some other states, such as Texas and Michigan, saw small upswings. There is also anger over the growing problem of homelessness. Number one in wealth and in poverty. Social stratification, rather than upward mobility, now characterizes the social order of California. The state has one of the nation's highest Gini ratios, which measures the inequality of wealth distribution between the richest and poorest residents, and the disparity is growing faster than in almost any other state outside the Northeast, according to James Galbraith, a liberal economist. The gap between middle and upper wages has become the widest in the nation, and while mid-range wages are around the same as those in the rest of the nation, they buy less because of much higher taxes, as well as energy and housing costs. California's level of inequality is greater than that of Mexico, and closer to that of Central American countries like Guatemala and Honduras, than to what is common in developed countries like Canada and Norway. With adjustment for cost of living, California now has the highest overall poverty rate in the United States, according to the Census Bureau. Fully one-third of welfare recipients in the nation live in California, which is home to barely 12% of the total population. 
A United Way study in 2017 showed that close to one-third of the state's families are barely able to pay their bills. Today, eight million Californians live in poverty, including two million children. Research by the Public Policy Institute found that 45.8% of California's children live close to the poverty level, often in substandard housing. Conditions are especially tough for Hispanics and African Americans, who constitute 45% of the state's population. Almost one-third of the state's Hispanics and one-fifth of African Americans hang on the edge of poverty, notes the United Way. Based on cost-of-living estimation tools from the Census Bureau, 28% of African Americans in the state live in poverty, compared with 22% nationally. Fully one-third of Hispanics, the state's largest ethnic group, are below the poverty line, compared with 21% outside the state. Over two-thirds of non-citizen Latinos, including the undocumented, live at or below the poverty line. The state's vast interior, home to roughly one in three of its residents, suffers the highest poverty rates in the nation. Los Angeles, by far the state's largest metropolitan area, has among the highest poverty rates for major U.S. metros. In parts of Los Angeles, the growing homeless encampments have spawned medieval diseases such as typhus. There are even indications of a comeback for bubonic plague, the signature scourge of the Middle Ages. As the tech sector and the Bay Area have come to dominate the state's economy over the past 15 years, conditions have worsened for many, if not most, Californians. In the past, the state's economic diversity, from agriculture and home building to aerospace and entertainment, provided the means to succeed for a diverse population. The Great Recession hit California more profoundly than the rest of the country. And subsequently, the state's income growth has been remarkably concentrated in the tech-heavy Bay Area. Across the state, almost two-thirds of job growth in 2015 to 2016 was in minimum wage or near-minimum-wage jobs, according to the state's business roundtable. Since 2010, according to calculations by Marshall Toplansky of Chapman University, 80% of all jobs created in the state have paid under the median income, and half of these under $40,000, a poverty wage and a high-cost state. This is a higher proportion of lower-wage jobs than most other states have shown. The Hidden Reality of Silicon Valley The Bay Area of California, heartland of the tech boom and site of one of the most rapid accumulations of wealth in human history, has created not mass affluence, but an emergent dystopia. The website City Lab has described the Bay Area as a region of segregated innovation, where the upper class waxes, the middle class wanes, and the lower class lives in poverty that is becoming unshakable. Among the nation's large cities, inequality grew most rapidly over the last decade in San Francisco, reports the Brookings Institution. The California Budget Center named the city first in the state for economic inequality. It is a city of enormous wealth that is plagued by mass homelessness and rife with petty crime, while the middle-class family heads toward extinction. San Francisco lost 31,000 home-owning families over the past decade. 
Silicon Valley to the south, once an exemplar of suburban egalitarianism, has also become much more stratified. As recently as the 1980s, the San Jose area boasted one of the country's most egalitarian economies. Jobs in manufacturing, assembly, transportation, and customer support allowed people with a wide range of skills to attain the California dream. Many factory workers as well as middle managers could achieve home ownership and a comfortable retirement. The 1980s, write Manuel Pastor and Chris Brenner, were good times for growth and equity in Silicon Valley. But as the valley has ascended to global preeminence in technology, class divisions have grown ever starker. By 2015, some 76,000 millionaires and billionaires lived in Santa Clara and San Mateo counties, but hundreds of thousands of people were struggling to feed their families and pay their monthly bills. Nearly 30% of Silicon Valley's residents rely on public or private financial assistance. During the boom of the last decade, cost-adjusted wages dropped for middle-class workers, Latinos, and African Americans in Silicon Valley. One reason is the shift of employment away from manufacturing and into software. Over the past two decades, the Bay Area has lost around 160,000 manufacturing jobs. The IT industry has greatly expanded, but the newer software companies need fewer workers than other kinds of businesses, including the more traditional tech firms. Their revenues per employee are two to three times those of Intel, for example. They also often employ large numbers of non-citizens on temporary visas, who now constitute upwards of 40% of the tech workforce in Silicon Valley. Meanwhile, the numbers of black and Latino employees in the tech industry have been declining. Employment in the software industry is by no means always lucrative. Left behind are workers in the vast service sector, many of whom work for contractors. Security guards earn around $25,000 annually. Many lower and even mid-level workers at firms such as Google live in mobile home parks, while others sleep in their cars. The Valley has some of the nation's largest homeless encampments. Once a beacon of middle-class aspiration, Silicon Valley has become fragmented and divided, note Pastor and Brenner, with the high-tech community largely isolated from the broader region and particularly those parts of the region that are less fortunate. Feudalism with Better Marketing In Wired magazine, Antonio Garcia Martinez describes the contemporary Silicon Valley as feudalism with better marketing. He sees a clear elite of venture capitalists and company founders. Below them are the skilled professionals, well-paid but living ordinary middle-class lives, given the high prices and heavy taxes. Below them lies the vast population of gig workers, whom Garcia Martinez compares to sharecroppers in the South. At the bottom, there is an untouchable class of homeless, drug addicts, and criminals. Garcia Martinez depicts a society that is highly stratified with little social mobility. High prices make it all but impossible for most to own homes. Workers in the gig economy have little chance to improve their lot as they struggle to pay their rent or are forced to sleep in their cars or on friends' couches 
or commute great distances in to work. Roughly half of California's gig workers struggle with poverty. For the untouchables below them, the prospects are even grimmer. This regressive social evolution troubles many on both left and right. There are growing calls for regulation of the tech empire, for more antitrust action, or even for nationalization of the tech giants, not only in the United States, but also in Canada and Europe. In recent years, some once favorable progressives have labeled the tech oligarchs as just the latest purveyors of predatory capitalism and a mounting threat to democracy. Ultimately, few stand to benefit from the rise of the tech oligarchy. Almost half a century ago, Daniel Bell predicted in his landmark work, The Coming of Post-Industrial Society, that technology would enable those who control it to fulfill a social alchemist's dream, the dream of ordering mass society. Allowing a small number of technologists and financiers to dominate a huge portion of the economy and the information pipelines and to monetize every aspect of human behavior seems incompatible with democratic self-determination. Stanley Bing's novel, Immortal Life, portrays a society in the near future that is ruled by tech oligarchs. A chaotic government has essentially been replaced by a cabal of superannuated tech moguls who control 97% of sales in all market sectors, retail, entertainment, agriculture, and so on, through one huge interconnected skein of interests. Democratic government hasn't just been constrained, it has been made superfluous. The overlords implant devices into human brains and plan to dominate the world by controlling the central cloud that all humanity is plugged into. The novel's subtitle calls the story soon to be true, and it may not be awfully far from the mark. What we must ask ourselves is whether we want the hierarchical, socially stagnant, centrally programmed future that the oligarchs have in mind for us. Given what their vision appears to be and what we already see in California, resisting them represents the great imperative of our time. Part 3. The Clarity. A thoroughly scientific dictatorship will never be overthrown. Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. Chapter 7. The New Legitimizers With populist movements and parties gaining influence not only in North America but in Europe and Latin America as well, many have been predicting a new era of authoritarianism, such as portrayed by George Orwell in 1984 or by Margaret Atwood in The Handmaid's Tale. But the more likely model for future tyranny is Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, where the masters are not hoary Stalinoids or fanatical fundamentalists, but gentle, rational executives known as world controllers. The controllers preside over a world state composed of five biologically engineered social castes, from alphas at the top to epsilons at the bottom. Alphas take for granted their preeminence and their right to the labor of lower castes. People no longer have children since humans are developed in vats. Families have been abolished, 
except in a few distant, savage reservations. Citizens of the world state live in amenity-rich dormitories and enjoy pleasurable pharmaceuticals and unconstrained sex without commitment or consequences. This family-free life is similar to how Mark Zuckerberg described his ideal Facebook employees. We may not own a car. We may not have a family. Simplicity in life is what allows you to focus on what's important. Huxley's scenario eerily resembles what today's oligarchs favor, a society conditioned by technology and ruled by an elite with superior intelligence. The power of the controllers in Brave New World resides mostly in their ability to mold cultural values. Like those at the top of today's clerisy, they suppress unacceptable ideas not by brute force, but by characterizing them as deplorable, risible, absurd, or even pornographic. Because their pronouncements are accepted as authoritative, they can run a thought dictatorship far more subtle and efficient than that of Mussolini, Hitler, or Stalin. In the Middle Ages, the teachings of the Catholic Church on social and cultural values were generally seen as having great moral authority. The medieval clergy preached a value system heavily influenced by St. Augustine, who had sought to replace the values of classical society, materialism, egotism, beauty, ambition, with chastity, self-sacrifice, and other worldliness. As Pitram Sarukin wrote, the clerical class turned the sensate culture of classical civilization into an ideational one centered on spiritual concerns. When the cultural role of the clergy diminished in the modern era, their part was gradually taken up by what Samuel Taylor Coleridge termed a clerisy of intellectuals. Religious clerics would remain part of this class, though on the whole it grew more secular over time. Today's clerisy includes university professors, scientists, public intellectuals, and heads of charitable foundations. Such people have more or less replaced the clergy as what the great German sociologist Max Weber called the new legitimizers. The Ideal of a Cognitive Elite The concept of a governing class whose superior cognitive ability makes them rightful leaders goes back at least to ancient Greece, when Plato proposed a society run by the brightest and most talented, a vision that Marx described as an Athenian idealization of the Egyptian caste system. Later utopian literature, such as Thomas More's Utopia in the 16th century, depicts enlightened people constructing a just and prosperous society, but with strict limits on freedom for the masses. At the beginning of the 20th century, H. G. Wells envisioned an emergent class of capable men who could take upon themselves the responsibility of controlling and restricting very greatly the non-functional masses. Wells predicted that this new elite would replace democracy with a higher organism, which he called the New Republic. The New Deal era brought considerable support for placing more decision-making power in the hands of university professors and other specialists, and even some well-credentialed journalists. During the Second World War and the Cold War, the idea of relying more on scientists, engineers, and other intellectuals in matters of public policy 
gained strength. The sociologist C. Wright Mills advocated the creation of a ruling cognitive elite, asking, Who else but intellectuals are capable of discerning the role in history of explicit history-making decisions? As economic competition from Germany, Japan, and other countries grew in the 1970s, some American policy intellectuals argued for establishing a powerful country of planners to bring rational order to the untidy competitive marketplace, which they saw as weakening the American economy. Today, people such as the journalist Thomas Friedman and the former Obama budget advisor Peter Orzog have called for granting more power to credentialed experts in Washington, Brussels, or Geneva in the belief that our societal problems are too complex for elected representatives to address. Today's Knowledge Class Half a century ago, Daniel Bell recognized an emerging knowledge class composed of people whose status rested on educational attainment and access to knowledge in a post-industrial society. Theoretically, it represented a meritocracy, but this class has become mostly hereditary, as well-educated people, particularly from elite colleges, marry each other and aim to perpetuate their status. Between 1960 and 2005, the share of men with university degrees who married women with university degrees nearly doubled, from 25% to 48%. As Bell observed, parents of high status in a meritocracy will use their advantages to improve their children's prospects, and in this way, after one generation, a meritocracy simply becomes an enclaved class. Michael Lind uses professional and graduate degrees as a way of measuring what he calls the managerial overclass, which includes private and public bureaucrats who run large national and global corporations, as well as directors of nonprofits and university professors. He estimates the overclass to be some 15% of the American population. Charles Murray defines a new upper class more narrowly as the most successful 5% in managerial positions, the professions, and the media, and he estimates it at roughly 2.4 million people out of a country of over 320 million. By comparison, the first estate in France was around 1% of the population on the eve of the revolution. In France today, Christophe Guilouis identifies a privileged stratum of people who gain from globalization, or at least are not harmed by it, and who operate from an assumption of moral superiority that justifies their privilege. What I designate as the clerisy is a group far larger and broader than the oligarchy. It spans a growing section of the workforce that is mostly employed outside of material production as teachers, consultants, lawyers, government workers, and medical providers. These professions are largely insulated from the risks of the marketplace. They also make up an increasing proportion of the workforce in the high-income countries. Many of the fastest-growing occupations since 2010 have been in the arts, personal care, and health care, usually tied to nonprofits or the state. Meanwhile, those in private sector middle-class jobs, small business owners, workers in basic industries and construction, have seen their share of the job market shrink. 
The picture is similar in Europe. In France, well over a million lower-skilled industry jobs have disappeared in the past quarter century, while the numbers of technical jobs have increased markedly in both the public and private realms. Those who work for state industries, universities, and other clerisy-oriented sectors enjoy far better benefits, notably pensions, than those working in the purely private sector. Many of the people in these growing sectors are well-positioned to exert a disproportionate influence on public attitudes and on policy as well, that is, to act as cultural legitimizers. Engineers of the Soul The clerical estate in the Middle Ages could mold cultural attitudes through its power over education and the written word. In modern times, this role is often played by what Stalin famously recognized as engineers of the soul, journalists, novelists, filmmakers, actors, and artists. Writers and other creative people are often portrayed as being resistant to authority and tolerant of differing viewpoints. But history often reveals them to be no more willing to oppose orthodoxy than anyone else. Many of Russia's most brilliant minds endorsed or assisted the Bolshevik efforts to remake the culture, and were often rewarded with comfortable lives, while the masses struggled to survive. The new ruling elites helped themselves to the property and possessions of the old aristocracy. In Germany, right-wing intellectuals such as Oswald Spengler, Karl Schmidt, and Edgar Jung helped plow the ideological field ahead of the Nazis. Many prominent creative people welcomed the Führer as a fellow artist, albeit one who had failed miserably as such in Vienna, and avidly assisted Hitler's efforts to cleanse German culture of foreign contamination. In the first months of the regime, testimonials of loyalty rained down upon it unrequested, writes the historian Friedrich Spotz. Some of those testimonials were self-serving, he suggests, since Nazi policies were hostile to leftist intellectuals and artists, as well as gays and Jews. Whether on the left or the right, totalitarianism represents the 20th century version of traditional religiosity with its own dogmas, priesthood, and inquisitions, notes the historian Klaus Fischer. The priests of totalitarianism have often been academics or artists or intellectuals, representatives of a modern clerisy. Toward a New Orthodoxy In the decades following the Second World War, a healthy debate about culture and society took place in the United States, albeit within limits, between conservatives and liberals, and even Marxists. In contrast to the brazen propaganda of the Soviet and fascist regimes, the U.S. news media embraced an ideal, though not always followed in practice, of impartiality and respect for the validity of numerous viewpoints. Today, the news media are increasingly inclined to promote a single orthodoxy. One reason for this is a change in the composition of the journalistic profession. Working-class reporters, many with ties to local communities, have been replaced by a more cosmopolitan breed with college degrees, typically in journalism. These reporters tilt overwhelmingly to the progressive side of politics. By 2018, barely 7% of U.S. reporters identified as Republicans, 
and some 97% of all political donations from journalists went to Democrats. Similar patterns are found in other Western countries, too. In France, as two-thirds of journalists favor the socialist left and sometimes spend considerable effort in apologizing for anything that might offend certain designated victim groups, the political tilt in journalism has been intensified by a geographical concentration of media in fewer centers, especially in London, New York, and San Francisco. At the same time, as a 2019 RAND report shows, journalism is steadily moving away from a fact-based model to one dominated by opinion. Usually it is left-leaning opinion that dominates, but a shift toward opinion also appears in the residual media institutions on the right. The RAND study suggests that the result for society is truth decay. Entertainment media are also turning into bastions of left-wing orthodoxy. Once divided between conservatives and liberals, Hollywood now tilts heavily to the left, as do its imitators elsewhere. Jonathan Chait, a liberal columnist, reviewed the offerings of major studios and networks and found a pervasive, if not total, liberalism. This tilt reflects the political views of the executives. Over 99% of all political donations by major entertainment executives in 2018 went to Democrats. There is a conservative branch of the clerisy today, some journalists and academics and residents of think tanks, but they have little influence in the dominant mainstream media, the universities, or the wider culture. The real cultural power and influence are in what Thomas Piketty calls the Brahmin left rather than the merchant right. The modern clerisy tend to believe themselves more enlightened than the average person, on attitudes about the family, for example, and seek to impose their own standards through the media, the education system, and various arenas of cultural production. Their judgments about such issues as race relations and white privilege can be even more unforgiving than traditional religious teachings on homosexuality, divorce, or birth control. People who venture outside the correct worldview may be made to feel they have committed a kind of original sin for which they can ask forgiveness, but will nevertheless remain excommunicated. Technocratic Authoritarianism Those who harbor a sense of natural superiority tend to support strong governmental action in line with their personal values and an overconfidence in their own competence, according to research by Slavisa Tosic of the University of Kiev on decision-making in government. But the history of unaccountable rule by experts, or those claiming intellectual superiority, is less than encouraging for liberal democracy. Mussolini's fascist ideology is now viewed as reactionary and clownish, but it highlighted the idea of a society governed with scientific principles by a cognitively superior ruling class. Soviet communism, the sworn enemy of fascism, followed a similar technocratic course. In the late 1890s, Engels saw technology as the key to achieving the productivity gains that could transform societies without the need for capitalism. Marx believed utterly in the crucial role of technocratic administrators and scientists in society. He even offered to dedicate Das Kapital to Charles Darwin. 
Marx's first successful acolytes, the Bolsheviks, believed that a small, ideologically motivated elite could turn a backward Russia into the most advanced and progressive regime on earth. The Bolsheviks would replace the old aristocracy with their own ideological elite, whom they believed could orchestrate a more egalitarian society. If 10,000 nobles could rule the whole of Russia, Lenin asked, why not us? At the time of the USSR's collapse, the nomenclatura constituted a true elite of 750,000 people. They and their families were a mere 1.5% of the population, not far different from the nobility's percentage in 14th century France. While Stalin had hoped they would come from a special mold, they showed themselves to be ordinary mortals as fallible as other men. After the fall of the Soviet regime, some members of the nomenclatura used their influence to gain control of privatizing industries, emerging as powerful oligarchs. The most powerful clerisy on earth today is in China. Intellectuals and scholars long played an influential role in Chinese politics and administration, similar to the role once played in the West by clerics when they were by far the most literate element of the population. Traditionally, the Mandarinate followed Confucianism, which celebrates learning not for the sake of the self, but as a way to cultivate the communal quality that could help shape the society, as the Chinese scholar Tu Wei Ming writes. While Mao Zedong was hostile to the old Mandarinate, he placed a high value on technical expertise with the typically Marxist faith in science. We shall teach the sun and moon to change places, he predicted and he needed the brain power of his nation to do so. Yet the scientific and technical experts either respected or feared the ruling authorities so much that they did not openly confront the insane policies of the Great Leap Forward that led to a famine and killed as many as 36 million people. One witness, the journalist and author Yang Ji Sheng, writes that the party cadres viewed the peasants as expendable. The cadres became overbearing and vicious in imposing one campaign after another, subjecting disobedient people to beatings, detention, and torture. After Mao, the Chinese government opened itself up to more grassroots input, particularly in the economy, and welcomed some diversity of viewpoints. But as the horrors of the Maoist period receded into the past, entrepreneurial skill became less valued, and a higher importance was given to academic credentials. In contemporary China, and indeed throughout East Asia, an elite college degree often determines social status, the ability to earn enough for a decent apartment, and whom one can marry or even date. Academic credentials are the ticket into the professional and managerial class that staffs the most powerful bureaucracies of the Chinese state. According to a recent survey, this highly educated class does not constitute a potential opposition to the party state, but instead serves as a bulwark of the authoritarian regime. David Goodman suggests that highly educated Chinese would likely oppose any democratizing reform that could allow the less educated masses to assert their voices. Even the Chinese students who study in the United States and elsewhere in the West support the regime as it will benefit them when they return. 
the modern mandrinate is helping to direct society and regulate the lives of citizens with the aid of intrusive technology. As we have seen, for example, a social credit system is used to award various rights or privileges, such as the right of travel, to those who show proper behavior. Who Watches the Watchers? Members of the contemporary clerisy who hold positions of power like to be seen as disinterested actors, making rational choices for the good of society. But there are people with their own prejudices and self-interest. Japan's much lionized public bureaucracy has been portrayed as a model of selfless patriotic bureaucracy, dedicated to the public good. But in reality, many top bureaucrats move on to high-paying jobs in the very industries they once monitored, under a system known as amakudari, or descent from heaven. In the United States and Europe, elite bureaucrats tend to deny any ideological bias or class interest, but as James Burnham noted, they generally share an ideology of managerialism, centered on efficiency in producing the results desired by managers themselves. As the managerial class grows in power, it becomes more self-reverential. Its members are responsible not to the citizenry, but only to other managers, and to those regarded as part of a qualified peer group. The complexity of problems facing our society, climate change, mass migration, or the effects of technology, for example, may often seem beyond the competency of elected representatives. If higher education made for better people with wiser judgment, it might be tolerable to hand great powers for controlling society to highly educated experts. But as Aldous Huxley observed, scientists and other experts do not own a monopoly on either virtue or political wisdom. There are clear dangers in ceding too much power to unelected and unaccountable elites who claim moral authority or expertise backed by higher education. Rule by the most educated and highly credentialed people is profoundly illiberal, observes Yasha Monk, a Harvard progressive. Many elite progressives, the core of the clerisy, might prefer such a model for society, but it would endanger political pluralism especially when the credentialed elites are overly sure of their own correctness. A survey commissioned by The Atlantic notes that the highly educated are now arguably the least politically tolerant group in America. In coming decades, the clerisy could employ new intellectual technology as a means of ordering the mass society, as Daniel Bell predicted. Technology might be employed to reprogram attitudes on everything from the environment to the notion of unconscious bias against racial and sexual minorities. Companies like Google, as well as college campuses, already use technology to monitor and correct the thinking of employees. The Chinese government's efforts to monitor thoughts and regulate opinion, sometimes assisted by U.S. tech firms, could prove a harbinger of things to come in Europe, Australia, and North America. Before we permit the clerisy to have such powers, we may want to consider the old Latin phrase, quis custodiet ipsus custodis, who watches the watchers. Chapter 8. The Control Tower.
universities have long served as gatekeepers for the upper classes, but they are doing less well at what was arguably their greatest 20th century triumph, expanding opportunities for the many. The reach of higher education grew dramatically in the last century, and so did the importance of academic credentials for getting good jobs. Elite degrees have become more crucial for access to the most lucrative positions, even as the top schools have grown more socially exclusive. This is not just an American story. In China, for example, the regime has greatly expanded higher education, especially in technical subjects, in a drive to achieve economic and technological preeminence. The number of college teachers in China has risen by one million in the past two decades. But higher education also serves as a key to entrance into the nation's ruling class, and an elite degree is highly prized. By 2012, at least five of the nine members of the Politburo Standing Committee, China's top decision-making body, had children or grandchildren who had studied at elite American universities in a program launched 10 years ago by the Communist Party to train the next generation of Mandarins. Looking at the question globally, David Rothkopf, author of Superclass, The Global Power Elite and the World They Are Making, compiled a list of more than 6,000 members of what he calls the global superclass, leaders of corporations, banks and investment firms, governments, the military, the media, and religious groups. From this list, Rothkopf and his colleagues drew a globally and sectorally representative sample of 300 randomly selected names and found that nearly 3 in 10 had attended one of 20 elite universities, particularly Stanford, Harvard, and the University of Chicago. Universities have also been seen as reinforcing the preeminence of what John Sexton, president of New York University, calls the idea capitals of the world, such as New York, Boston, London, Paris, and Beijing, all having universities and their graduates as a major part of their economic growth engine. Forging the New Elite Perhaps nothing has so defined or enhanced the role of the clerisy in American society as the expansion of universities. Enrollment in colleges and universities in the United States increased threefold between 1910 and 1940. Another great expansion began as the post-war baby boomers were reaching college age. The total number of people enrolled in college in the United States grew from 5 million in 1964 to over 7.6 million in 1970 and then to some 20 million today. The percentage of college graduates in the labor force soared from under 11% in 1970 to over 30% in 2010, a proportion that has remained about the same since then. The increase in college attendance is even greater globally. Across the world, the number of enrollments in higher education was expected to grow from 214.1 million in 2015 to 250.7 million by 2020 and may rise to 377.4 million by 2030 and 594.1 million by 2040. Some 40% of college students will then be in East Asia and the Pacific, 
while South and West Asia will be home to more than a quarter of all college students. Cutting against this democratizing trend in the United States, however, is the soaring cost of a university education. It more than tripled as a proportion of the national median salary between 1963 and 2013. This has made the top universities more socially exclusive, even as they have become more important for success. The elite universities have grown richer both in their endowments and in the academic qualifications of the students they admit relative to less well-positioned institutions. Harvard, Princeton, Stanford, and Yale collectively enroll more students from households in the top 1% of the income distribution than from households in the bottom 60%. Well-to-do families can better afford not only the high tuition costs of elite universities, but also the expense of excellent primary and secondary schools. Only 2.2% of the nation's students graduate from non-sectarian private high schools. Yet these graduates account for 26% of students at Harvard and 28% at Princeton. High-income parents can also give their children such advantages as museum trips, SAT coaching classes, and unpaid internships. Robert Reich, a lion of the left and a former Harvard professor, characterizes the modern elite universities as being designed mainly to educate children of the wealthy and upper-middle class. Today's leading universities are filling the role envisioned by Charles Eliot, who became Harvard's president in 1869, taking the lead in creating an enlightened national ruling class, the Alphas, if you will. A National Journal survey of 250 top American public sector decision-makers found that 40% of them were Ivy League graduates. Only a quarter had earned a graduate degree from a public university. Top universities have considerable power over access to the best jobs in the private sector. Nitin Noria, dean of the Harvard Business School, has shown how corporate leaders in the second half of the 20th century shifted away from reliance on family networks or religious communities in hiring toward a preference for an MBA or similar credentials from a business school. This change might have had a democratizing effect, but the intense competition for jobs effectively winnows down the pool to graduates of the most select institutions. Those without an elite degree may find a corporate niche, but often as a contractor or in a low-level position that offers little chance of climbing the ladder through hard work and experience. In Britain, likewise, the expansion of higher education was once regarded as a means of breaking down class barriers, but university degrees now accentuate these divisions instead. As the emphasis on academic credentials grew, notes David Goodhart, so did the advantage of the graduates from elite schools, who are mostly upper class. These schools account for 7% of all college graduates, but 50% of the nation's print journalists and 70% of the senior judiciary. There are not only class divisions between elite schools and the rest, but even a growing class divide within universities in the United States. Administrators, deans, and tenured faculty live in what one writer compares to a modern form of manorialism, where luxury and leisure come as of right. 
Yet much of the actual academic work is done by a class that more closely resembles the impoverished parish priests of medieval times. Teaching adjuncts now constitute 70% of the U.S. academic workforce, up from 55% four decades ago, and one in four of this group lives on some form of public assistance. Some of them actually see their commitment to the academy as akin to a monk's vow of poverty. Redefining Knowledge The historian J.B. Berry in 1913 described the Middle Ages as a time when a large field was covered by beliefs which authority claimed to impose as true and reason was warned off the ground. The relationship between reason and revelation was a challenging question in medieval universities, which all had a liberal arts curriculum in addition to one or more of the advanced professional faculties, law, medicine, and theology. Church authorities wanted to have clergy trained in the defense of orthodox doctrine after heretical movements had arisen, and they were watchful over the teaching of theology in the universities. Theology was the dominant field at Paris, where scholars were licensed to teach by the bishop. The University of Paris became a staunch guardian of orthodoxy, and in the 1300s it held a conclave to affirm the reality of demons that were supposedly infecting society. At the same time, medieval scholars regularly debated contrary propositions and tried to reconcile reason with revelation, or the natural philosophy of Aristotle with Christian doctrine. Church authorities attempted to suppress ideas considered heretical with condemnations and sometimes imprisonment, though in the long run they were not successful. John Wycliffe espoused heretical doctrines at the University of Oxford in the 14th century, and John Huss stood likewise at the University of Prague in the early 15th century. In other fields, the idea of an expanding body of knowledge gradually began to displace a focus on learning what had already been said by authorities. Over the centuries, the university gradually emerged as a beacon of open inquiry and tolerance for different viewpoints. The liberalizing trend was strongest at first in the Netherlands, which in the 17th century had more university students than England and attracted many from other countries. In other parts of Europe, professors could still be fired for deviations from orthodoxy, but all in all, the university became a leading center for contending opinions, for experimentation, and for the synthesis of disciplines. It was a place for pushing the frontiers of knowledge and for passing down the accumulated wisdom of the past. Half a century ago, Pitterum Sorokin observed something different appearing in the academic world, a frantic eagerness to know more and more about less and less. University professors today seem determined to narrow the field of inquiry, specializing in obscure topics of little interest to anyone outside the university, or even to many inside. The vast majority of academic articles, so crucial for getting tenure, are rarely cited, especially in the social sciences and humanities. Academic life has grown sterile and irrelevant to most people, even as an academic degree has become more important than ever for an individual's prospects. Repressing Tolerance 
Once seen as champions of free thought and inquiry, universities have been reverting to something more like a medieval model in which heretical ideas come under assault. Today, the attack is likely to come from inside rather than from an external oversight body like the Catholic Church. Even so, the zeal for enforcing ideological orthodoxy is reminiscent of the pattern in states such as the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany, where universities served as a stronghold of the regime. The current mission in universities, and even in lower schools, is to promote a particular set of beliefs rather than to teach, notes Austin Williams. Instead of celebrating a diversity of opinion, academia seems to have adopted the notion of repressive tolerance developed by the German philosopher Herbert Marcuse, who said that tolerance for different views, that is, views he disapproved of, was really a form of oppression. Although himself an exile from Nazi repression, Marcuse insisted that liberal societies were hardly less oppressive than the Nazi or Soviet systems, and no more deserving of support. He asserted that the concept of liberty was employed as a powerful instrument of domination. Marcuse would likely be pleased that today's universities are achieving levels of unanimity that one might have found in a medieval school of theology or in a Soviet university. In 1990, according to survey data by the Higher Education Research Institute at UCLA, 42% of professors identified as liberal or far left. By 2014, that number had jumped to 60%. A few years later, a study of 51 top-rated colleges found that the proportion of liberals to conservatives was generally at least 8 to 1, and often as high as 70 to 1. At elite liberal arts schools like Wellesley, Swarthmore, and Williams, the proportion reaches 120 to 1. The skew is particularly acute in fields that most affect public policy and opinion. Well under 10% of faculty at leading law schools, such as Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Columbia, and Berkeley, schools that graduate many of the nation's leaders, describe themselves as conservative. In other countries, too, academia is far to the left of the general population. Roughly half of British voters lean to the right, while less than 12% of academics do. Similar ratios are common across Europe and in Canada. This political skewing has the effect of transforming much of academia into something resembling an ideological re-education camp. For example, prominent schools of journalism, including Columbia's, have moved away from teaching the fundamentals of reporting to openly advancing a leftist social justice agenda. Even some progressives, like the legal scholar Cass Sunstein, recognize that students are less likely to get a good education and faculty members are likely to learn less from one another if there is a prevailing political orthodoxy. Yet there seems to be little desire among university administrators to counter the slide ever deeper into ideological conformism. Instead, many are promoting it. One college president in Canada, for example, justified efforts to tamp down on free speech by saying it was intended to encourage better speech and to protect the humanity of students, faculty, and staff. 
as many as 20 campuses in the United States asked professors to sign a pledge to support the official campus doctrines concerning diversity of a superficial kind, which does not mean diversity of opinion. These pledges eerily reprise the loyalty pledges that were common during the darkest days of the Cold War. As a result, universities appear to be nurturing a generation of activists who more resemble Bible-thumping preachers than open-minded intellectuals. The new university-minted activists tend to look for moral purity on issues surrounding the doctrine of intersectionality, said James Lindsay, an atheist philosopher. They especially tend to demonize heretics or blasphemers or anyone who goes too far outside that dogmatic structure of belief and threatens it. Those people are often excommunicated. According to recent studies of cognitive behavior, the products of today's universities are inclined to maintain rigid positions on various issues, confident of their own superior intelligence and perspicuity, and to be intolerant of other views. For example, the Atlantic found less tolerance for differing opinions in the Boston area and other places with a high proportion of university graduates than in less educated regions. An Age of Mass Amnesia Universities can get away with obscurantism and enforced ideological conformism because of their enormous power over labor markets. They are no longer primarily about learning, as Jane Jacobs noted, but about providing the credential needed for a high-paying job. One recent study of American college students found that more than one-third did not demonstrate any significant improvement in learning in four years of college. Employers report that recent graduates are short on critical thinking skills. Equally worrying is that students in the West are not acquiring familiarity with their own cultural heritage. Universities no longer take the care they once did to transmit the genius of the past, with its often inconvenient lessons, to the next generation. We are in danger of mass amnesia, being cut off from knowledge of our own cultural history, writes Jacobs. In the early Middle Ages, much of the thought and writing from the classical era was lost through neglect, as literacy plummeted and the attention of clerics turned first to theological matters, although what was preserved from the classical past is thanks to the diligent labors of the monks who copied and recopied the manuscripts. Most peasants, and even many nobles, being illiterate, lacked first-hand knowledge not just of classical works, but even of the Bible. Today's young people are not so illiterate, but are often ignorant of the past. It's ironic that while we enjoy easier access to information than ever before, we are falling behind in real knowledge. We are replacing books with blogs and essays with tweets. Book reading outside of school or work has declined markedly among the young in particular. A survey done in 2014 found slightly over half of American children saying they like to read books for fun, down from 60% in 2010. This is not just an American trend. A landmark study by University College London tracked 11,000 children born in 2000 up to age 14 and found that only one in ten ever did any reading in their space time as teenagers. 
Unfortunately, the universities too often are not picking up the slack by offering a curriculum rich in classic literature and history. University policies on curriculum largely ignore writers such as Homer, Confucius, Shakespeare, Milton, Tocqueville, or the Founding Fathers. Some books are scorned for having been written by dead white males, who as a group are linked to such horrors as slavery, the subjugation of women, and mass poverty. At many U.S. colleges, books written before 1990 are considered inaccessible to students. A decay in the teaching of history and civics may help explain why millennials, despite their higher rates of university education, are far more likely than previous generations to be dismissive of basic constitutional and civil rights. They are also far more likely than their elders to accept limits on freedom of speech, which is a natural result of the political culture on campuses. Some 40% of millennials, notes the Pew Research Center, favor suppressing speech deemed offensive to minorities, well above the 27% among Gen Xers, 24% among baby boomers, and only 12% among the oldest cohorts, many of whom remember the fascist and communist regimes of the past. Similarly, European millennials display far less faith in democracy and less objection to autocratic government than previous generations, who lived either under dictatorships or in their aftermath. Young Europeans are almost three times as likely as their elders to believe that democracy is failing. The expansion of higher education may once have exemplified the promise of liberal civilization to increase opportunity for all. But universities can now be accelerating the decline of liberal culture by graduating students who too often have not learned what brought it into existence. Chapter 9. New Religions Religion is a central defining characteristic of civilizations, observed Samuel Huntington. We can see its importance in the evolution of the earliest cities in Mesopotamia and Egypt, India and China. Religion provided a view of the world that helped people cope with disasters and the fear of death, offering hope for immortality. It provided a moral code and a means of social cohesion. As traditional churches have lost influence in the modern era, a space is opened for the growth of new spiritual affiliations to serve similar purposes. The Catholic Church today is divided and enmeshed in scandal. The formerly dynamic evangelical movement is losing adherence in the developed world. Across the board, America, once considered an exception to the global secularizing trend, is now rapidly unchurching. The millennial generation in the United States are leaving religious institutions at a rate four times that of their counterparts three decades ago. Almost 40% of people ages 18 to 29 have no religious affiliation. The trend is even more pronounced in Europe, where well over 50% of those under age 40 do not identify with any religion. The big loser here is Christianity. In the United Kingdom, there are as many Muslims now attending weekly prayer as Christians attending church. Since 2001, the country has seen the closure of some 500 churches. This does not mean that religious belief is disappearing. 
Many people reject organized faiths but maintain some spiritual values. Today, fewer people than ever attend church, but two-thirds of unaffiliated Americans polled by Pew still believe in God or a universal spirit. These individuals may be looking for some new spiritual rock upon which to rest their hopes or their search for meaning. The Church of Social Justice There are new religious currents emerging within some long-established faith traditions. In Catholicism, Reform Judaism, and various mainline Protestant denominations, Orthodox beliefs are being supplemented or even supplanted by what could be called a gospel of social justice activism. This trend reflects the changing character of universities and theological seminaries, where faculties lean heavily to the left. In religion departments of top liberal arts colleges, liberals outnumber conservatives by 70 to 1. The woke members of today's progressive churches are changing religions from within, and the churches most committed to the progressive course are in the most serious decline. Mainstream Protestant denominations have lost 5 million members in the past decade. The Catholic Church, now under a reforming and politically progressive pope, is losing adherents not only in North America and Europe, where the pope's views are widely applauded, but also in his homeland of Latin America. Today, roughly one in four Nicaraguans, one in five Brazilians, and one in seven Venezuelans are former Catholics. In contrast, the more conservative faiths, including some evangelical churches, Orthodox Judaism, and fundamentalist Islam, are still robust, thanks in part to higher birth rates, particularly in the developing world. Despite the vitality of some denominations, it is entirely possible that the traditional mainstream religions in the West will be doomed to cultural irrelevance within a few decades. According to Pew, for example, Christianity will be the minority faith across Britain and in some other European countries by 2050. The Green Faith As traditional faiths are waning, environmentalism is coming to resemble a faith for the new age. Christianity offered guidance for how one should live and conduct one's personal affairs in a manner pleasing to God, but the Green Movement seeks to steer people toward a life in better harmony with nature. Environmentalism, says Joel Garot, has become the religion of choice for urban atheists. Like medieval Catholicism, the green faith foresees impending doom caused by human activity. To people in the Middle Ages, wrote Barbara Tuckman, apocalypse was in the air. The final judgment, brought on by human sin, was not only real but imminent. St. Norbert in the 12th century predicted that the event would come within the lifetime of his contemporaries. Similarly, the environmental movement, whether religious, scientific, or leftist, routinely traces a direct line from human materialism to looming catastrophe. In his highly influential 1968 book, The Population Bomb, Paul Ehrlich claimed that humanity would breed ourselves to extinction if birth rates were not severely curtailed. A widely hailed Club of Rome report in 1972 predicted massive shortages of natural resources unless there was a shift to lower birth rates, slower economic growth, less material consumption, and reduced social mobility. 
Often, such pronouncements are accepted uncritically in media, academic, and political circles. Yet these apocalyptic predictions, like those in the Middle Ages, could turn out to be exaggerated or even plain wrong. Contrary to environmentalist dogma from the 1970s, for example, natural resources, including energy and food, did not run out, but became more readily available. This is not to say that real environmental crises do not need to be confronted, any more than Christianity's critique of human sin and selfishness should be considered irrelevant to our lives. But today is in the past. There is an element of hypocrisy among some of those who tell others to be content with poverty or extol its virtues. In the Middle Ages, most parish priests and their communicants suffered great material hardship, while many bishops lived in luxury, loaded with gold and clad in purple, as Petrarch put it. Similarly, environmentalists aim to impose austerity on the masses while excusing the excesses of their ultra-rich supporters. Even as they urge everyone else to cut back on consumption, the green rich buy a modern version of indulgences through carbon credits and other virtue-signaling devices. This allows them to save the planet in style. Recently, an estimated 1,500 GHG-spewing private jets were flown to Davos carrying people to a conference to discuss the environmental crisis. Few of the high-profile climate activists seem willing to give up their multiple houses, yachts, or plethora of cars. Perhaps most disturbing, some in the Green Movement have become highly dogmatic in their views, often denigrating or even persecuting those who dare dissent in any way. Today, open discussions on the environment and how best to preserve the planet are about as rare as open debate over God's existence would have been in the Catholic Church of the 11th century. Some veteran climate scientists, such as Roger Pilkey and Judith Curry, or the Greenpeace founder Patrick Moore, or former members of the UN International Panel on Climate Change, have been demonized and marginalized for deviating from what Curry has described as an overly monolithic approach to the issue of climate change. Some climate activists even seem ready to take dissenters to court in an effort to ban their ideas by legal means. Not only energy companies, but think tanks and dissident scientists have been targeted for criminal prosecution. These tactics are all too reminiscent of the medieval Inquisition. It is a very poor way to tackle a complex scientific issue where open inquiry and debate are needed, observes Steve Coonan, President Obama's Undersecretary of Energy for Science. Transhumanism, the faith of the new ruling class? Another contender to be the new faith of the oligarchy is transhumanism, the search for eternal life through technology. The rise to power of net-based monopolies coincides with a new sort of religion based on becoming immortal, writes Jaron Lanier. Potentially the most radical and far-reaching of the emerging creeds, transhumanism is a distinctly secular approach to achieving the long-cherished religious goal of immortality. The new tech religion treats mortality not as something to be transcended through moral actions, but as a bug to be corrected by technology. Although it sounds a bit like a wacky cult, 
Transhumanism has long exercised a strong fascination for the elites of Silicon Valley. Devotees range from Sergey Brin, Larry Page, and Ray Kurzweil of Google to Peter Thiel and Sam Altman, Y Combinator. Kurzweil celebrates new technologies that allow for close monitoring of brain activity. Y Combinator is developing a technology for uploading one's brain and preserving it digitally. The aim is to Develop and promote the realization of a godhead based on artificial intelligence. In some ways, transhumanism seems natural for those who hold technology above all other values. It dispenses with the physical and emotional realities of belonging to a church. Transhumanism offers a marketing opportunity for new technology, notes Thomas Metzinger of Gutenberg Research College in Mainz. An immortality app can be offered for sale to the transhumanist customer base. This new faith represents a major break with traditional religions. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam stressed the essential equality of people, at least among the faithful, and commanded acts of charity and other good deeds toward the less fortunate. These teachings would eventually feed into democratic and egalitarian thinking, particularly in the West. Equality is not something that concerns the transhumanists, though. Yuval Noah Harari sees instead a future where a small and privileged elite of upgraded humans gain control of society and use genetic engineering to cement the superior status of their offspring. Their aim will be not to follow God's laws, but to become gods themselves by a kind of directed and accelerated evolution. Bioengineering is not going to wait patiently for natural selection to work its magic. Instead, bioengineers will take the old sapien's body and intentionally rewrite its genetic code, rewire its brain circuits, alter its biochemical balance, and even grow entirely new limbs. They will thereby create new godlings who might be as different from us sapiens as we are different from Homo erectus. Clearly, the tech elite's search for immortality does not address issues that affect those still living within nature's limits. Someone needing assistance in a disaster is more likely to look toward a church member than a data scientist for help. Organized faiths at their best serve as powerful instruments of social improvement with particular concern for the needy. The secular social justice warriors may be passionately committed to their causes, but often it is groups like the Baptists or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who come to the rescue faster and more effectively in a crisis. Religious institutions have long brought together people of disparate backgrounds and economic status, building social bonds between them and serving as unifying transmitters of tradition and cultural identity. In contrast, the new forms of religion seem likely to divide people along political and cognitive lines. Without a physical basis in local communities, they don't encourage the mingling of diverse people, but tend to be self-selecting for those who see themselves as both morally and intellectually superior to the vast majority of the population. They may offer guidance on how to prolong life, but little in the way of moral instruction. A world without traditional religion might still have people with spiritual awareness, but it would be short on the blessings of institutions that have promoted community 
sacrifice, and faith for millennia. Part 4. The Embattled Yeomanry No bourgeois, no democracy. Barrington Moore Chapter 10. The Rise and Decline of Upward Mobility Far from the congenial warmth of the Mediterranean shores, the Netherlands sits on the cold and waterlogged fringe of northern Europe. The ancient inhabitants of the region, the Batavi, served Rome as auxiliaries but gave little in the way of tribute. They didn't have much to trade, but they never lost their sense of independence. In the first century, they rebelled against Roman imperial taxes, and though eventually defeated, they left an enviable reputation for ferocity. In time, this obscure race, nurtured on a hard-won spit of soggy land, would lead a shift in the balance of world power away from the Mediterranean, China, and the Islamic Empire toward a handful of small countries along the North Sea. The Low Countries occupied a tiny corner of the continent, short in natural resources, but by the 13th century, the inhabitants had begun to expand their territory by draining swamps and building dikes. Improvements in agricultural methods led to an early commercialization of the countryside and fueled a wider economic takeoff. As the economic historian Jan de Vries observed, capitalism grew out of the soil in Holland. The region was more urbanized than most of Europe, with a sizable population of artisans and prosperous merchants. In the 16th century, the northern provinces rejected Catholicism in favor of Calvinism, a creed more congenial to commerce. After expelling their Spanish Habsburg rulers in the 17th century, the United Provinces built the world's most powerful maritime empire, with a fleet larger than all the rest of Europe's put together. Amsterdam's port, where as many as 8,000 ships were docked, bustled with a rich trade in foodstuffs, hemp, hops, and dye plants. The opportunistic Dutch expanded their commercial activity in part by pioneering technological changes decades ahead of their competitors. But arguably the greatest achievement of the Dutch lay in creating a republic free from aristocratic or clerical domination, as the expulsion of the feudally inclined Spanish overlords empowered the bourgeoisie. The Dutch expanded human rights, including those of religious minorities and women, and cultivated a keen interest in children and the nuclear family. Dutch culture was family-centered, inventive, sober, frugal, and tolerant. A separation of science and philosophy from religion was exemplified in the writings of Baruch Spinoza, among others. Although majority Calvinist, the country boasted large colonies of Catholics, Jews, and other outsiders, including Muslims. Roughly a third of Amsterdam's population in 1650 were foreign-born. Some immigrants came as merchants or artisans, but even the poorest, observed one Dutchman in 1692, cannot die of hunger if he works hard. As late as the 18th century, the Dutch Republic was regarded as a poor country, and the British viewed it as the indigested vomit of the sea. But the reclaimed land helped raise a substantial class of small landowners at a time when most property in Europe was owned by the aristocracy or the church. The growing ranks of proprietors 
were the heart of Dutch dynamism, and they set down the geographical roots of Republican liberty, notes the historian Simon Schama. The Rise of the Yeomanry The Dutch Republic represents an early and robust growth of economic and social mobility, shaking up the more static, hierarchical order that was typical of the medieval world. A similar process would spread through Western Europe and then far beyond. The middle orders, neither slaves nor elites, had long suffered under heavy taxation and restrictions on their choices. Most peasants, unable to stay on their own farms, had been compelled to place themselves under the protection of a powerful landlord. Reduced to serfdom and bound to labor on a particular estate, they were legally unfree. This reality for the masses became entrenched during the Middle Ages. A series of historical developments undermined the basis of the stratified agrarian order. These include a warming climate, a diminishing threat of invasion, more efficient agricultural practices, a demographic rebound, and the revival of commerce and urban culture, particularly around the Mediterranean and the Baltic. By the 13th century, serfdom was waning in much of Western Europe. Some manumitted serfs would suffer from the loss of basic protections afforded in the feudal system, but others were able to acquire land for their own farms or start enterprises in the reinvigorated cities. Advances in military technology also served to lift the status of commoners. Most people could not afford to buy the armor or maintain the horses used by the medieval warrior nobility but small landowners and artisans could wield new weapons such as the longbow, and eventually pikes and muskets, and serve as foot soldiers for kings or princes. When a force of common soldiers could defeat heavily armored knights on horseback, it signaled decline for the military dominance of the feudal nobility. Organized citizen forces would become more important in warfare, as in Cromwell's New Model Army which epitomized a new kind of military organization during the English Civil War. Eventually, the legions of revolutionary France challenged the entrenched aristocracy in the historic heartland of feudalism. In 1792, Goethe watched an army of patriotic French volunteers, together with soldiers of the former royal army, defeat the vaunted Prussians at Valmy, and remarked, Here and on this day, begins a new era in world history. At the same time, economic growth led to rising expectations for what the common person could attain in life on earth, something rare in feudal times. For many centuries, or even millennia, despite advances in agriculture and the growth of commerce, average incomes remained nearly the same, and material conditions changed little. It was only during the 17th century that sustained economic growth appeared to be possible. Average income then began to rise dramatically, first in Britain and the Netherlands. When the Industrial Revolution was proceeding apace, Karl Marx declared the rising bourgeoisie to be the first to show what man's activity can bring about by exchanging the veneer of religiosity and chivalry with naked, shameless, direct, brutal exploitation he saw a new form of oppression on the horizon. Marx's analysis held much truth as a growing urban proletariat suffered under dismal working conditions and grim prospects. 
but his prognostication that capitalism would become ever more oligarchic proved to be exaggerated. Capitalism did not produce the dystopia that Marx predicted, but instead uplifted a large portion of the masses and created a solid middle class, a designation first used in Britain in 1812. A study covering the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, and the United States shows that all three saw a rapid decline in the concentration of wealth from the 1820s up to the 1970s. Never before had so much prosperity and relative economic security been so widely enjoyed. And with more prosperity came a stronger political voice.